from 1974 to 1982, the British folk rock duo Richard and Linda Thompson released a string of six immaculately crafted, timeless, breathtakingly profound albums that awed and blew away the few people who bought them back then and have only grown in stature since, inspiring and influencing scores of notable bands and artists, many of whom you, the listener, are very familiar with. From 1974's I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, undisputedly deserving to be on anyone's list of 10 greatest folk rock albums ever, alongside Bob Dylan and the Birds, to the anguish, pain, catharsis, and songwriting virtuosity of the duo's breakup album, 1982's Shoot Out the Lights, Richard and Linda did the seemingly impossible. They took roots music, played with traditional rock and folk instruments, and created a unique and original sound that raised the bar for songwriting prowess and explored the depths of the human condition rarely heard in the pop music idiom. And that's saying something coming from a post-Dylan musical landscape. Welcome to Richard and Linda Thompson, A Legacy. Hey, hey, it's the Curmudgeons. And welcome to the 27th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade, coming to you from Guangzhou, South Korea. And we host a podcast made just for you. We do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. So then, this belongs to you. Who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report where we not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff here that you never knew before. And now you can join our new invite-only Facebook group, which we call the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Join us there and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Arturo, hello there, sir. I'm doing well. I'm glad you're doing well. Um, I'm especially doing well because this is the time of year that I really like when it comes to following music because sure. new releases haven't quite come out and accumulated yet to the point where you feel the pressure that you have to start listening to everything. So yeah. you can sit back, reflect on things you have heard before. And uh, it's perfect because this entire episode is one gigantic reflection. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It re- it reflects. It might blind you if you look in the light uh, too long. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's it's a good time to catch up at the beginning of the year too. And uh, that's another uh, thing about the, this uh, format and what we're talking about today. It's a good time to catch up on uh, a particular artist that uh, other people might not consider uh, or might not be top of mind for them to catch up on. Well, hey, that's why we're here. We're doing you a public service. And so we'll be talking about a legacy. Whose legacy? We'll get into that very, very soon. Now, wait. Do I hear spaceships in the horizon? Do I feel the cosmic rain? Why, yes, I do. Because we are now in the parallel universe, folks. Uh, The parallel universe is our weekly segment 
in which we uh, introduce you to some new music, specifically new albums that Arturo and I have been checking out and listening to lately, and ones that we wish that you uh, and the world would embrace the same way that the whole bunch of us used to embrace you two 35 years ago. Uh, not really happening these days, but hey, dare to dream. And when we're in this universe, it does happen. So that said, Arturo, uh, who are you talking about this week in the parallel universe? Oh yeah, one of my favorite albums of last year. I can I can honestly say it came out last year. Uh, and it's by an R&B soul singer from Atlanta by the name of Curtis Harding and his uh, his most recent album, If Words Were Flowers. Now, Curtis Harding is an R&B soul artist who was born in Michigan, actually. Um, but he grew up in Atlanta as a part of a small Mennonite Christian community. Um, eventually, he grew out of it, of course. <laughs> um, in, in fact, if any of you out there are familiar with the terrific Atlanta-based garage rock band Black Lips. Oh, great uh, band. Yeah, Harding formed an R&B garage rock fusion band called Night Sun with members of Black Lips way back in 2009. Um, his solo debut, Harding, Harding's debut, uh, Soul Power, came out in 2014, and it was an excellent hybrid of well-written rock and soul that was retro without necessarily being revivalist or nostalgic for the past, which is really kind of a, tr a tough trick to pull off. Yeah. Um, his follow-up album, 2017's Face Your Fear, uh, was a very well-produced but ultimately underwhelming effort. Uh, it was a little monotonous in its ballad heaviness which is usually a sign of just not having the killer tunes. And I know why, because if you look, read the credits, Curtis Harding wrote all the songs on his debut album. On his second album, he co-wrote them all with the producer. So that, that that's kind of a sign right there that maybe he didn't quite have all the goods for the second okay. album. But, oh boy, do the killer tunes show up on his new album, which came in at number 11 in my list of top albums of 2021. Uh, this is a straight up late 60s, early 70s soul power album, ready made for Soul Train if that TV show still existed. Uh, <laughs> it's the kind of music that the Black Keys and Danger Mouse would have loved to co-opt for their next hypothetical album together. It's that good. Um, imagine Isaac Hayes with a little Marvin Gaye thrown in. Plus, add like all the yearning and introspective of contemporary soul stars, such as Michael Kiwanuka. It's got all that uh, to it. Um, there are two things that keep this album, in my opinion, from being just another run-of-the-mill retro revivalist soul record. First, while the songs are indeed more varied, both melodically and in their tempos from his disappointing second album, the overall songwriting is just much more improved. Um, it's classicist in approach. The melodies and hooks just sink in and don't let up. Don't let up, I should say. And so what if they're all love songs? When they're delivered with this much skill and effortlessness, I mean, to ask for anything more is just greedy. You know? yeah. um, uh, the second album, second reason this album stands out from other modern soul records, and perhaps the main reason, is the arrangements, particularly the horn arrangements. Uh, the horn section, they are the stars of this album. 
um, providing exquisite textures and punctuation to Harding's uh, smooth, as as smooth as silk vocals. Um, the slightly psychedelic guitars, played by him, by the way, that weave in and out of the mix are a genuine treat as well. Um, if you want standout tracks, just refer to the two singles from the album. You have the, the, the gospel-tinged, desperately optimistic, symphonic sweep of Hopeful, and you have the gorgeous, moving, pleading I Won't Let You Down, a, a track that could very well serve as a healthier alternative to Viagra. Uh, in a parallel universe, Curtis Harding would be one of the country's biggest R&B soul stars. Everyone should check out If Words Were Flowers, one of the two or three best soul albums of 2021. Yeah, I I have to spend more time uh, with this record, but as a general comment, uh, I will say that right now seems like it's a fertile uh, time for revivalist soul, uh, at least in Britain. Uh, it seems like most of the, the good stuff that I've heard of that sort of ilk, of that sort of 70s uh, quoting soul is coming from Britain. And then here in the States, uh, I don't know if you've heard it. It's a fun record, even though it's kind of corny. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the Silk Sonic record. Uh, yet. No, I, is, that, is that the one that, uh, what's that, his face? Um, uh, that's Bruno Mars and Anderson. Yes. Pack. Bruno Mars. That's what I was thinking. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun record, but it's really, really kind of corny to the point <laughs> that you roll your eyes. And so, uh, anything that's reverent, but, but original, uh, uh, in this sort of, like you said, the soul revival, the, the, the true soul, uh, uh, idiom. I will definitely uh, want to check out and spend more time with. So uh, sounds good. All right, Chris, what do you have? Okay, so I'm going in a completely, utterly uh, different uh, direction than Arturo uh, with my pick. Uh, so I will be talking a little bit about uh, the album uh, Jubilee by uh, the band Japanese Breakfast. Uh, they've been getting a little bit uh, of coverage uh, in the mainstream. Uh, because of this uh, beguiling, uh, smile-inducing, uh, retro-rific uh, uh, record. So let me just explain uh, this a little bit. Now, uh, band leader Michelle Zahner has just about the most indie-rific modern-day rock biography imaginable. Korean immigrant, raised in Eugene, Oregon, attended college at Bryn Mawr near Philadelphia, author of a new memoirs, memoirs about her uniquely American journey about love, loss, and grief called Crying in H-Mart. Yeah, my eyes rolled too when I first learned of her and, and this bio. Thankfully, though, uh, Zahner, the actual artist, is not a cliche. Her band, Japanese Breakfast, is actually really good and pretty darn original. Uh, they offer an electronicized blanket of dream pop, and while some of their influences may seem obvious, Flaming Lips, Hot Chip, Bjork, it all grows more beautiful and engaging as you grow more familiar with the album. Now, uh, or with that, with this band. Now, this album by Japanese Breakfast uh, Jubilee, unlike Zahner's book, is about anything but grief. It's actually quite joyous, full of big bouncy hooks, atmospheric psychedelia, and soft but emotive singing by Zahner. The dynamics of Jubilee are captured best uh, in a discussion of two songs, and these are the second and third tracks on the album. Uh, the song Be Sweet, 
lives up to its title billing with a dazzlingly catchy up-tempo uh, dance uh, structure uh, and lyrics about the hope uh, that comes with new love. Uh, the song features beguiling uh, vocal overdubs on the chorus and echoing but supple keyboard lines. And it has a brand of confidence and reverence for the 1980s discotheque that makes me wonder if Madonna, as in the 1983-84 Madonna, is a major informer of Zahner's mus musical vocabulary. Uh, now, uh, Be Sweet is immediately followed by Kokomo, Indiana, uh, by far the warmest, loveliest song on the record. It's a wide-eyed pop tune uh, driven by strings and uh, Zahner's most straightforward singing. And lyrically, it's actually sweeter than Be Sweet, where the good memories of someone who bailed out of this, quote, flyover state, unquote, for bigger and better things, not including Zahner's protagonist, continue to predominate. Jubilee landed Japanese Breakfast on numerous publications, top 10 albums for 2020,000, those lists, 20, 2021, those lists, uh, including Rolling Stones. Now, I can see why. Uh, it's the kind of poppy, upbeat remix of orthodox radio pop that the current crop of fanboy wannabes critics love. Uh, now, while I wouldn't quite put the album that high up on the list, it is a very good very fun, and just a very nice record. Uh, it's quite an accomplishment for Japanese Breakfast and for Zahner, who defies all of the conventions that you would expect from her bio. The end. Arturo, I'm going to guess, since I know you're not much of a, of a Lips and uh, fan in general, that you probably hate this record. Uh, this album was nominated uh, for, uh, for a Grammy for Best Alternative Rock yes. Album. Um, now, I kind of have a general rule of thumb if the Grammy committee likes it, it automatically sucks. There you go. <laughs> and this is basically what this is. I mean, seriously, I mean, didn't we have enough of the retro 80s synth pop revival in the early teens? It, <laughs> it started in the noughties. It continued into the early, into the early teens. And we're now in the, in the early 20s. Isn't there another decade you can like get music and be inspired from than the 1980s? There are yes. other de there are other decades out there, people. There are uh, other decades that out there that you can mine from. Okay? Yeah, I know, but, but there's not a whole lot of bands that are doing it like this anymore. I mean, yes, like there yes, there are. <laughs> That's the thing. There's, this whole this album is so fucking derivative. It is so just like it's so vanilla and plastic, and its sweetness is exactly what I think stinks. It's just generic sweetness. I just, I mean, I agree with you that that Kokomo song is pretty decent. It's got a, it's got a sweet little, you know, country folk rock, you know, uh, tinge to it, which makes it, which really makes it stand out from the rest of the record. The rest of the record to me is just monotonous, generic, retro 80s synth pop, of which there are many people who are, uh, you know, many artists in indie rock doing this now, trying trying to pass it as indie rock when it's just retro 80s synth pop. Oh no, oh hey, hey, yeah, you know. The lead singer is kind of cute. Okay, big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good way to put it. But no, there's not nearly as much of this as there was, say, like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And yes, I mean, you do have uh, a couple of artists out there that still uh, mine this as a sort of dance rock uh, thing. For what it's worth, uh, we've talked about in the last year two albums from uh, very good, very original artists who decided that they would wear this jacket 
for themselves. We're talking about Ty Siegel and uh, Ken Gizzard and the Lizard, Wizard uh, that both did their take on sort of 80s uh, dream pop here recently. Uh, and we can't wait for them to go back to what they are actually good at. <laughs> you know, why doesn't the music community in general just retire 80s dream pop for at least 10 years or seven years? Yeah. Just retire it. Do something else. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I guess for whatever reason, I mean, look, you know, if I'm saying that Madonna's uh, 83, 84 period, you know, the uh, the dress you, dress you up uh, period is an influence on this girl, then that's not a terrible thing because that stuff is actually pretty indelible. It's not just of its era. I mean, you know, yeah, how they yeah, and, yeah, but the difference is Madonna actually, in my opinion, was, you know, a really good songwriter with a knack for a hook and a melody that no offense, Mrs. Honor here really doesn't have in my opinion. Oh, she's got, the, she's got the knack. I mean, she's got the knack for the hooks. I don't know about the melodies, but definitely the hooks. Uh, you know, she's definitely not uh, on on the melodies. She's not Madonna's equal, but I, know, I I think the hooks are pretty roundly, pretty strong on this record. Nah, I I, I still think it's just retro revival '80s synth pop mush, and it's the kind of stuff that like I'm just so so sick of hearing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, hey, it's it's reverent, but I don't think it's mushy. Uh, I've heard mushier. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, that doesn't say much. <laughs> Okay, well then, there you go. So, uh, and and with that, uh, we we leave the parallel uh, universe uh, now, which I guess in Arturo's mind means we leave mush behind. Uh, that well, that the mush lives in the parallel universe, not in this one, uh, at least in his mind. So here we are again, uh, Arturo. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, two of our favorite artists, or one, at least one of our favorite artists, and his ex-wife today, uh, Richard and Linda Thompson. Uh, yeah. In the latest entry in our series, dot dot dot, a legacy. So yes. uh, fill us in on what to expect. Yeah, like I, like you said, uh, this episode is the second in what we call our legacy series. Pearl Jam was the first one several episodes ago, and in this series, we take an artist slash band that many of you, the listeners, probably don't think of normally as having a towering influence on rock and roll and. We make the case that, yes, they absolutely, undoubtedly do um, have a towering influence on not just rock music, but other and ensuing generations of uh, bands and artists. No question. Uh, now, for this installment, Chris and I will tackle one of the most criminally underrated and overlooked artists in the history of rock, regardless of subgenre. And that is Richard Thompson. And in this particular case, his albums with his ex-wife, Linda Thompson. Now, before we go into this, let me say that uh, all you listeners out there, we acknowledge this is a very obscure niche choice. <laughs> um, this is not someone, uh, this is not an artist that most people or even most of our listeners are familiar with. Um, but if you are on our Facebook page or in our Facebook group page, you will have seen several entries that Chris and I have both put up of Richard and Linda live performances and or Richard and Linda studio tracks. And we've uh, we've kind of like um, uh, we've planted, met several of them throughout the past week and a half or the past two weeks uh, to kind of provide some context for our listeners who've, who are not familiar with Richard and Linda Thompson. And many people are not. 
And understandably so, I get it. Um, so please, we really hope you have taken the time to watch and listen to some of the videos that Chris and I uh, have posted regarding uh, Richard and Linda. So you get a, a sense of the kind of music they did before Chris and I geek out <laughs> and uh, go wholeheartedly into uh, the discography of one of our uh, favorite artists uh, of all time. So uh, anyway, so back to who is this guy, Richard Thompson? Well, this guy is a virtuoso guitarist and a songwriter and a lyricist and a singer on a genius level. He's a quadruple threat. Uh, one comparable to Bob Dylan or Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or Bruce Springsteen or Tom Waits or anyone else of his uh, generation. Um, he emerged from the legendary English folk rock pioneers Fairport Convention in the early 1970s to create a series of stunning folk rock albums with his then wife, Linda, that defy time, they defy space, they defy convention. It's a body of work that contains masterpiece upon masterpiece upon masterpiece. And they really, really, really should be lauded and appreciated by younger generations of musicians and music critics and music geeks for infinity. Um, as a folk rock duo, Richard and Linda were legitimately the UK's answer to uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Well, Actually, scratch that. Linda had way more wattage <laughs> than Art Garfunkel as a singer. Uh, one uh, who, Linda, who had one, well, Garfunkel basically had one famous astounding lead turn, but was otherwise, let's face it, the second part of a two-part harmony with Paul Simon. Um, really, the only thing more underrated than Thompson's music and artistry is the profound influence and effect his music, particularly his album streak with Linda, had on legions of noteworthy and well-known artists and bands throughout the years, many of whom we will mention and quote from later on. Um, if you aren't familiar with Richard Thompson, aside from the bits that we've uh, posted on Facebook, especially his run of six albums with Linda Thompson, then you should be. And uh, yours truly, curmudgeon, sincerely hope that this very special episode will help fill the gigantic hole in your record collection or your Spotify playlist. Hell, maybe we'll keep you sleepless for days glued to YouTube. The guy is an incredible live performer as well. There's always a good time to be found within the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly community. That is our invite-only private Facebook group that Arturo and I launched in December. So far, it's been a spirited romp through this podcast's decidedly bent worldview, and as it turns out, through those of our members as well. Now, is Iron Maiden a good example of a band that blended musel mastery and pop accessibility to an acceptable degree? Well, one of our members sure thinks so, and we gave him the safe space to do it, damn it. If bold opinions and thoughts and passionate defenses of rock and roll are your jam, then the Curmudgeon Rock Report's Curmudgeonly community is for you. Come find us, and we will probably let you in. So, let's set this up, folks. Uh, we're talking about Richard and Linda Thompson. Uh, Richard Thompson being one of the great uh, British 
uh, musical minds of the last uh, 50 or 60 years. Uh, but he knew that he wanted to march to a different drummer. There's a reason you may not have heard of him is because uh, he chose to defy convention rather than go with it. Uh, last year, he uh, released uh, a new memoirs, a very good little book uh, called B-Swing. Uh, we recommend that you pick it up uh, from your local record store or indie bookstore. It's about 275 pages. Uh, I myself read it uh, in a day. Uh, he talks a little bit about uh, the first time that he came over to America to play shows with uh, his forerunner band, uh, Fairport uh, Convention. And uh, on page, uh, I think it's 141 of the book, he says, uh, quote, we weren't as sexy as the Stones or as lovable as Herman's Hermits or Freddie and the Dreamers. And most importantly, we were not recycling recognizable American styles. If audiences there were going to like us, they'd have to take a step in our direction. Now, for a guy who professes in the book to suffer from low self-esteem for the first part of his life, uh, that was a really confident posture to take. And it was a spirit that grew along with this ever-developing talent uh, as an artist. Uh, with that said, prelude, when Richard <laughs> met Linda. Arturo, <laughs> take it from here. Yeah, um, a little bit more about Fairport Convention because they do re they really do deserve uh, uh, some mentioning. Um, Thompson started his career with them as one of their guitarists. He was with them from 1967 to 1970. Um, they started out basically you know, being 1967. They started out and the media pegged them as this as you know the British answer to Jefferson Airplane. What they ended up being was the British answer to the birds, you know, yep. and, and this is in their pioneering in, well, in their country, their fusion of a uh, folk rock, folk music and rock. Whereas the birds took American traditional American folk music, fused it with rock later on country rock. What the Fairports did was take traditional English folk music and uh, which nobody was really doing at the time. And they fused it with with a, a rock, electric rock instrumentation, you know, guitar, bass, drums, throw in a fiddle, and you have some pretty rockin' English folk music. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they had yeah. a great they had a great run of albums. Um, the first album, the self-titled Fairport Convention, uh, is their least folk rock record. Um, it's, it's got kind of a jazzy swing to it. Uh, but then um, Sandy Denny, the legendary English folk singer, joined them for a run of three albums through 1969. Um, what We Did in Our Holidays, Unhalf Bricking, and of course, the immortal uh, Liege and Leaf, uh, one of the greatest folk rock albums ever made any country <laughs> by anyone. Um, so all three of those albums all came out the same year. Um, Richard talks a lot about this in his memoir about his yes. time uh, during this, uh, him him in the band during this time. Uh, in 1970, Sandy Denny left the group. Um, and they, or I, I, the way Richard says, they kind of wanted her gone. Yeah, they because, fired her. Yeah, they or, fired her, yeah. Yeah, essentially because uh, her focus wasn't with the music. And I guess the guy she was with at the time was seen as being more of a hindrance. And they all thought that he'd end up taking over the band. And yeah. sure enough, him and uh, her and that dude, 
uh, ended up as their own act. Uh, yeah. Like a, a year later. Uh, and, and one thought about about Fairpoint and we'll be talking, we'll be mentioning this book a lot because it's fresh in our minds and it obviously it's germane to the subject. Uh, Richard Thompson talks about him being very, very influenced and the, the, the rest of the band by music from Big Pink. Yeah. by uh, the band and essentially uh, he says in there that it's it's one thing it's okay to have a talent for mimicry but at some point you have to find a way to be original and so what they did is they took the music from big pink uh, construct and uh, what the the band was doing with America with American and North American uh, folk styles and tradition and they applied it to British folk music and tradition especially uh, Scottish and uh, Northern uh, England and those uh, folk influences. So like you said, it's the rock backbone, uh, but with those uh, parochial uh, Celtic and, and other and Scotch and other influences. Uh, so that that's pretty fascinating to me that they made that marriage. Yeah. And, um, and, and it was really, really uh, influential to a lot of artists and bands later on. It was a big inspiration uh I mean, members of Fairport went on to form Steel Eye Span um, mm-hmm. and you know, a couple of other folk rock groups. Oh, Pentangle. Pentangle um, kind of yeah. like. Although they, 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 their first album came before, came at the same year as Fairport. And they were doing the English folk before. But Fairport, their version, their brand of English folk rock rocked a little more than pentangle whereas pentangle was more of a jazz folk fusion yeah thing. well exactly um, well one well one it 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 rocked harder but two it was more english man yeah <laughs> it, well and and the scotch i mean it was is yeah. the northern part of the uk where they sure. got a lot of their influences from sure. you know which yeah. we'll talk a little bit uh, about more in depth yeah. later yeah well needless to say needless to say richard thompson left the band in uh, late 1970 and after that fairport just became a medieval minstrel band <laughs> playing yeah. nothing but you know medieval english folk music non-stop in infinitum <laughs> yeah you know? let's yeah. let's just put it this way if you ever need a soundtrack for your rent fair or a house band for your rent fair uh, uh call those brothers up <laughs> yeah, yeah you know um rt as we refer to him richard um and throughout 1971 he was basically every english folk musicians session musician and touring musician uh, spent the yep. whole year on tour and in the studio. Eventually came out with his first solo album, Henry the Human Fly, in 1972, which phenomenally flopped. But oh, really, yeah. it's really not that bad. It's really it's, not that it's bad. It's pretty good. I mean, it basically, yeah, it's Thompson's first efforts at uh, being out in front with his own songwriting because he's forming his his own uh, voice as a songwriter at this period. And again, he, he talks about in the book, he suffered from low self-esteem. And I think it was when he couldn't, you know, he had his ambitions to go out on his own and do his own thing and be up on stage. Well, once you're on stage and it's your own thing, well, you can't hide anymore. You know, you can't be the, the you can't, you can't be the shy gawky geek in the back. Right. Uh, you know, you have to kind of come out of that. And so, uh, so I guess this is his first foot forward and it's at, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, but I love his line about it is that it was met with universal indifference. <laughs> yeah. Listen, yeah. the the angels took my racehorse away is a great song. Look it up, oh, yeah. everybody. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it it absolutely is. But it's it's good, but it's the unpolished diamond sure. uh, portion of it. It it took about two years uh, from that to when we get to uh, his first record with uh, Linda Peters, 
or Thompson, nay Peters, uh, that uh, it really uh, starts to uh, gel and become wholly incredibly unique. Speaking of Linda, Chris, around well, the, yes. ar- around this time is when they started out as friends and then slowly evolved into a romantic relationship until they got married in 72. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Linda was good friends. I mean, Linda was a singer who was in that uh, scene. Uh, gorgeous singer. I mean, just an unbelievable voice with just a real talent uh, for expressing uh, uh, the emotions of other people's work. But she's buddies with Sandy Denny and uh, with uh, several other uh, folks in the scene. And they're hanging around. They knew each other. They, uh, I think they had a mutual interest in Scottish uh, uh, tradition and uh, history and art and culture. Uh, Linda was actually from Glasgow uh, or Glasgow yeah. or however they say it over there. Glasgow. Glasgow. Okay. Uh, so they they ended up uh, getting together uh, from there. And like she said, you know, she was career backup singer and career uh, side uh, side uh, artist. And, you know, both of them never out in front. Uh, right. They have they have incredible talent uh, and have this incredibly rich uh, musical vocabulary. And they have that, you know, bond but they've never been out in front and now they've met each other. And uh, that's really where it started. And you'll get into this in a second, but the reason he quit on Sandy Denny, uh, you know, he was the, uh, a, uh, you know, obviously he was a session musician, session musician, uh, but his steadiest gig was working for Sandy Denny as part right. of her band on her solo career. Reason that he quit is because he wanted to spend more time with Linda. He didn't right. want to be on the road for months. Yeah. And so that's kind of where it started. Uh, but, uh, what other thoughts do you have on Fairport and about this, about this period where he meets Linda? Um, yeah, I gave them all except for one more. And the last one I'll make, I want to dispel a myth. Um, in in music circles, there is a rumor and a myth that Richard Thompson was offered the position of being one of the guitarists in the Eagles. (laughs) Uh, let me Uh, I'm going to paraphrase from the book. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but this is basically what happened. Um, And this is Richard's words. Um, In 1971, that, you know, the the session musician year, basically, um, he was on tour um, with, I think it was was Sandy Denny or someone else. Anyway, um, he was doing a residency at the Troubadour in L.A. Yes. uh, Being the guitarist for, you know. British folk musician X, whatever you want to call it. He, had, he did it for so many. Um, and hanging out in the Troubadour, he struck up a conversation with Glenn Fry, And uh, they were saying, oh, yeah, I, Richard, yeah, you, you were the guy in Fairport Convention. I like your guitar playing, man. And Richard goes, yeah, 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 I, I saw you. You were, you know, you were in Linda Romstadt's band. Yeah, yeah. And then Glenn Fry told him, yeah, man, well, the band that we're in, you know, we, we, we were Linda's band, Linda Romstadt's band. But uh, now we have our own band and we got our own record label and we're going to put out our, new, our first album soon. Do you want to come over to our place and listen to us? And Richard says, yeah, sure. So they got in his car, uh, in Glenn's car. Uh, I would love to be a fly on the, the windshield listening to that, conversation, listening to that <laughs> yeah. conversation. Glenn Fry and Richard Thompson. But anyway, yeah. they uh, end up at the Eagles headquarters house. And basically, the members of the Eagles basically played the songs that would make up their first album to Richard Thompson, you know, um, Richard said, Oh yeah, man, I, he liked it. He liked their vocal harmonies, especially 
but they never directly offered him a gig in their band. That is simply not what happened, according to Richard. Yeah, uh, he, so the, the performance ended, and Glenn Fry drove uh, Richard back to the troubadour. The end. <laughs> the end. And, and and that's the most fortunate thing that ever happened to Randy Meisner. Yeah. Uh, that re- Could you imagine Richard Thompson uh, uh, <laughs> play, you know, playing in that band uh, alongside Fry and Bernie Leiden? I mean, that would have been a really interesting interesting or, band. Or, 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 or like just have Richard Thompson's songs such as The End of the Rainbow and Withered and Died sitting alongside Peaceful Easy Feeling and Take It Easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, Winslow, Arizona just got a whole lot drearier. Uh, yeah. So uh, what, what, one other thing that I want to just sort of share from the book that sets this up again. So he is going to strike out on his own uh, from uh, Sandy Denny and him and uh, Linda are going to do uh, their own thing. But he offers a general thought about where he's always been and where he was at that point as far as when he's looking at the music business and uh, the people in it. Uh, he writes, uh, and I'll quote this. Uh, the music world is full of arseholes. Yes, it actually says arseholes in the book. Yeah, he's British. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The music world was full of arseholes, absolute arrogant, self-serving dickheads who imagine it all revolves around them. I've met plenty, and there's plenty more that I avoid. To work for these people can be painful and unusually, and un- uh, unusually an unmusical, unrewarding experience. Many of them are talented. Many are adored by the public who are happy to see self-confidence and egotism up there on the stage manifesting as showmanship. Ooh. Give give me a folk club with 30 people who treat you as nothing special. And that was approximately the world I was about to enter. I wonder who he thinks is uh, are, are the dickheads in rock. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting uh, discussion. I'm, I'm thinking that there might be a few of his peers. Uh, yeah, I know that he says that uh, his big influence that his favorite of the London guitarists of at that time was Peter Green. Yeah. But almost wonder if he's talking about Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that was the first act I could think of because, you know, Fleetwood Mac is one of those bands that's had about 14 iterations yeah. and they've all, and they've always had asshole frontmen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they all, they always managed now maybe mix an asshole too, but they always managed to get the Peter Greens and Bob Welch's and, uh, Lindsey Buckingham's and, you know, Stevie Nicks and all those. These are not like the nicest people. You could yeah. be talking about Pink Floyd and Roger Waters. <laughs> well, that, that, it would definitely fit, <laughs> you know, you know, the guy who, uh, uh, wrote an album about how, uh, how miserable his life was on the road that made him feel like he should be a fascist dic- uh, dictator. Yeah. yeah. And I had the audacity to compare being a rock star to being Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very tasteful, Roger. Anyway, yeah, he's an arsehole. <laughs> On this episode, Chris and I extolled the virtues of the criminally underrated Richard Thompson and his brilliant run of albums with his then-wife, Linda. For the next episode, the curmudgeons will take on the Herculean task of defending one of the most derided and criticized albums, both critically and by fans, by a major rock band ever made. I'm talking about Metallica and their 2003 classic, well, at least a classic to our curmudgeonly ears, Saint Anger. Not only will we make the case that this is truly a great underappreciated album, 
will also make a case for how inventive and original it is, one of the most original in Metallica's discography, but will also make the case that it's one of their top three or five greatest albums. Yeah, we're going that far. Join us for the next episode as the curmudgeons make the case. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. All right. The first album that Richard and Linda did together is called I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. It came out in early 1974, but it was recorded one year earlier in early 1973. Uh, Chris, take us to the story of this album. What what happened? Okay, so uh, this is the beginning of Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson's journey uh, as uh, solo artists. So for context, Richard and Linda, I believe, are both 25 at this period. They're both uh, mid-20s, um, about my more or less my mom's age. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're about to strike out on their own. They've both been the potted plants to the left, very talented potted plants to the left, but they've never been front and center. Uh, and now here uh, is their uh, opportunity. Now, for as much as Richard might have enjoyed going back into the clubs and honing that sound, I mean, that's what they spent most of 72 and 73 doing is kind of being in those clubs, being part of that, that folk uh, uh, rock uh, scene, what was left of it at that point, and uh, getting that enjoyment and uh, cutting their teeth as their own act. But now it came time. They had been signed to uh, Island uh, Records. I guess Chris Blackwell was a big fan uh, of theirs. And they have this opportunity to make this record. So even while there's some liberation and growth as an artist, there's still pressure because this is their first standalone statement. And out of the gate, they had to hit it strong. Uh, In B-Swing, Thompson talks about the kind of pressure uh, that uh, he was in. Uh, He uh, has a couple of good lines. One where he says basically where, you know, parents, partners, and friends, uh, they rarely understand that staring blankly out of the window is an important part of the creative process (laughs) and only occasionally an excuse for doing nothing. (laughs) <laughs> and then he also, and I thought this was maybe the most telling line in the entire book. This is much later in the book, like towards the end where he says, uh, songwriting is a strange business. And those who claim to understand the creative process are usually uttering or uttering bullshit of the first magnitude. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, so with that, you know, he's under the pressure, but he's got the chops and he's developed these songs and he's got that sound. And one thing you also have to understand is as backdrop to this, you know, Richard and Linda, they never sold that much. And even even the Fairports, most of that scene, it wasn't uh, what was going to sell. I mean, remember, T-Rex is 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 blowing up at this point. And so and Bowie and all that. So, you know, even when they're on Island Records, they're not going to they're not going to get that much money. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they're not going to get that much love. And so. They never, throughout the course of their career, they never had the luxury of time or a budget uh, in making any of these records, uh, which, you know, really kind of gives them a raw and real, realer feel uh, because, you know, look, they couldn't afford to fake the kind of depth that you get on uh, this record and the others that followed. You can't fake it because you don't have time, you don't have money, and, you know, you you can't fuck around. And so uh, they go into this. Uh, with the blueprint and the songs and uh, what is that blueprint? What are those songs? 
So at this point, you know, Richard is to the point where they still want to celebrate turn of the century uh, British uh, folk rock. And, you know, we're talking about uh, folk, hold on. Uh, folk music, not rock. Turn of the century rock. <laughs> folk music, baby. Folk music. Yes. And so the idea is to meld that top of the century folk music with uh, with modern day rock. And so one of his missions on this record and in basically the template that followed was to take all of that stuff, you know, the crumb horns, the dulcimers, uh, the wood, the windwood instruments, the accordion, uh, the flutes, the mandolins, and all of that traditional instrument, and tuck his guitar in there, whether electric or acoustic, acoustic, and have it just shine just as much, be just as beautiful, and get just as much respect. And I think that was a mission uh, of his. And so that's what happened here. Uh, he it was very reverent, uh, you know, with stuff like when I get to the border. And uh, the title song, I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, uh, for the latter, they actually used a real silver band, as they called it. Yeah. These silver bands outside of Manchester, which are, you know, this very sort of happy, peppy marching music. Right. You know, think, think like piccolos, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, lots of light wind, you know, light wind woods and, you yeah. know, and and brass. And uh, they came in and, and played uh, uh, there. And so uh, this is a very unique, uh, very deep, uh, very poetic uh, record that melds those two styles beautifully. Uh, they had this real gift um, that uh, their themes generally were uh, joy, sorrow, sorrow rendered as joy, and joy rendered as sorrow. Uh, I mean, that's really the kind of the, the best way that you can describe uh, the thematic and emotional uh, fabric that runs through uh, Richard and, and Linda's catalog. And so with that said, Arturo, uh, what are your thoughts and observations and analysis of this record? Yeah, um, Chris, you just gave our listeners the uh, the uh, in the time analysis and background information as if you were there in 1973 and 74. What I'm going to try and do is give a modern uh, a modern analysis with modern years. Um, yes. If there is such a thing as the definitive quote unquote Richard Thompson album, this is it. And it's the one that is frequently put on best album ever lists. It's hard to think of another album with overriding themes of depression, hopelessness, loneliness, and overall being down and out that does a better job of actually being a soothing balm for listeners yep predisposed to that oh so existential feeling of being in this shit sandwich we call life you know yep. <laughs> you know like like seriously like what is it about sad depressing songs that make us want to listen to them when we're feeling sad and depressed you know uh if you think your life sucks listen to the characters in richard thompson songs <laughs> yeah yeah you know that that, that <laughs> is the thing not better <laughs> But but at the same time, like I said, it's sorrow rendered as yeah. joy. Sure, I mean, sure. You know, yeah. like uh, yeah, like when I get to the border and 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 some of some of the the stuff uh, in there, uh, you know, uh, hallelujah and and some of the you know we sing hallelujah and some of the other things where you get this, it's almost like a jaunty instrumentation, yeah. but like you said, but with a bleak, almost sarcastically uh, or you know sardonic <clears throat> take on life, but it's. Yeah. It's a good mix. And so when, so when you listen to it, the first thing you're going to notice is 
uh, it's just incredibly accessible. You know, I know we, oh, yeah. we've, we've, we've not made it sound like that because we, you know, we're talking about silver bands and dulcimers and uh, all this other stuff, but it's, uh, uh it, the, the rocking stuff rocks. The ballad stuff actually evokes emotions. There are a couple of songs on that album that routinely make me cry when I hear them or almost choke up. Uh, so uh, the emotion is real. The instrumentation is, you know, is, is top notch, but it's it's accessible and it, it it's just an awesome listen. It's the kind of thing that once we turn you on to this record, folks, you're going to be listening to it on repeat for a while. And let me go through a little rundown of the album sure. for those those who haven't run it or sorry haven't heard it. Um, the opening track, "When I Get to the Border," is this rousing, glorious piece of shimmering, almost Birdsian folk rock, whose declaration of joyousness is uh, at finally crossing, quote unquote, to the other side. Could be literally crossing the border to another country or figuratively crossing over to a happier state of mind and being. And considering it was around this time that the Thompsons were immersing themselves with Sufi Islam. Um, And that joyousness at finally crossing to the other side is undermined by the logical implication that the things really aren't so good on this side, quote unquote. Um, The Calvary Cross is one of the finest examples of Thompson's unique guitarist's gift of blending virtuosity and restraint, uh, showing off the Middle Eastern tones that would go on to be a staple of his playing. Again, again, exposure to Sufi Islam. Um, You have Withered and Died with its chorus of my dreams have withered and died is about as uplifting as the title suggests. Yeah. <laughs> but in no way does it take away from one of the most nakedly emotional and gorgeous melodies that uh, Thompson ever came up with alongside Linda's beautifully sympathetic vocals that make you realize that a uh, doleful isn't such a bad word. <laughs> um, you have the title track with its odd mixture of plaintiveness, joyousness, and, and desperation. Uh, kind of repeats the same mood as the opening track, but with a hooky horn section that you uh, discussed earlier, Chris. Um, the Little Beggar Girl would seem to the untrained ear, untrained meaning not familiar with the wry wit and subtle humor of traditional English folk music, to be a trite and frivolous affair, but is actually a character examination of the dark anger and desperation that comes with poverty. Um, other songs, such as Down Where the Drunkards Roll, has he got a friend for me and the end of the rainbow would be a dreary folk dirges in any other artist's hands um, with Richard's beautiful chord progressions and Linda's voice that not only breathe life into these sad characters, but makes the listener almost empathize with them. Um, They actually make sadness and loneliness seem like noble and worthwhile crosses to bear. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, you're right because this it's a very hopeful record in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, in a very strange way. You know, despite all of these sort of uh, bleak and uh, downtrodden uh, characters, all of these things that happened, like even even the great Valerio, who's you know the tightrope walker. Uh, it's 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 and, not. And by by the way, tightrope a trapeze artist contemplating suicide. If you yeah. think about what a trapeze artist actually does, the yep. suicide angle is some seriously dark, mordant humor, if you think yeah. about it. <laughs> but, but but we also never actually get the answer as to yeah. what, whether he actually fell or, or uh, held on or, you know, 
whether he grabbed back onto the rope. Uh, and so that that's what makes it. So it's this odd combination of desperation, but hope, you yeah, know, that it's sure. almost as if it's leaving it at the point of it's your choice, folks. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you might as well choose life. And so it's 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 a it's a like you said, rye is a good word for Richard Thompson, too. It's a rye cliffhanger. Yeah. To leave the in the end, uh, all I want to say in the end, if, if this sounds like I've like you and I, Chris, have gone over almost every single song on the album, that is because it is an album worth listening to all the way through in the running order that Richard and Linda intended, not in the quote unquote, just send me the links to a couple of tracks mentality that a lot of music listeners have these days. Oh, by the way, Richard and Linda's song, Hallelujah, better than Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. So there. So uh, they get some moderate, enough moderate success. Uh, funny story is it took this album about five months to actually get released yeah. because as it turns out, well, this was during a period where uh, there was an oil crisis, a big oil shock in 1973. So there legitimately was a shortage of vinyl. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, there wasn't enough petroleum to make the vinyl records. And so there was a delay in shipment of vinyl records. Uh, turns out, though, Thompson figures that it was their A&R man uh, that was not exactly enthused by their stuff. Right. And basically, as soon as that guy left Island Records, lo and behold, their record hits the shelves. Uh, <laughs> so it got out there. It got them some acclaim. It got them a, a few bucks. But at this point in Arturo alluded to this. This is where they get into uh, Sufism. And Sufism, uh, it's a um, sect or a uh, branch of uh, Islam uh, that uh, you know, has its own spiritual uh, code. And it's not, it, it's sort of, it's, it takes a little bit from Sunni and a little bit from Shiite. And it's its own corner. And it's, it's a really hardcore uh, reverence of, you know, Muhammad and, and, and God and, and Allah. Uh, the, in other words, the Sufis are very serious about the worship. You know, it, yeah. there's not, there's not as much politics. They are very, very, very serious about the worship, but also there's a, uh, they're very pacifist too. They're very, yeah. you know, yeah. They're, and, they're, and, and very they're, pacifist. They're, they're, they're kind of hippie actually. They're, they're, yeah. like, they're like Muslim hippies. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, but it's like the, it's the purest of, you know, the spiritual uh, sense, you know, when you're worshiping God. Uh, the Sufis, at least on the surface, they aim to cut out all the other bullshit, you know, right. that, it's, that it's between you and God and the practices of worshiping God. And this is the, the purest distillation, we think, of how you get closer to God. Now, uh, Thompson, uh, in his book uh, and in other interviews over the years, has talked about it. By the time he's 25, 26, he's a seeker. Uh, he's, you know, he's drinking too much. He's uh, feeling a little empty. He's trying to find himself. And, you know, through some connections or through just talking to folks, he finds this Sufi community there in London. And over the course of uh, five years, he gets more and more uh, entrenched and uh, deeper uh, in uh, to uh, this sect or this local sect of, of Sufi uh, Muslims. And so this is going on, and this is the backdrop to uh, when he's making uh, Richard and Linda's next two records, Hokey Pokey and Pour Down Like Silver. Yeah. Uh, 
Hokey Pokey comes first. Uh, Hokey Pokey is a fun record. Uh, it it it's probably their jauntiest record. You know, it's yeah. it, it's it's very upbeat. It's 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 got you know not just wry sense of humor, but kind of uh, uh, slyly dirty humor. Yeah, uh, that 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 goes through it. Uh, he says in the book, and you can hear it. And you know, I never thought about it before, but you can really hear it. There's the Middle Eastern influences, which Arturo mentioned, uh, and this is where it really takes off. You know, the uh, the stuff from Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria, uh, otherwise known as Andalusia, right? Uh, and you know, those sort of rhythms. You know, the the cliche rhythms, but uh, in Thompson's hands, they were anything but cliche. Uh, you know, and uh, then also Music Hall, which uh, is essentially British vaudeville. Uh, it's from <laughs> the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And sort of British theater music, and it's it's got that kind of oh, you know, you know, think like sort of a marching music kind of beat. So he basically the kind of stuff that Kinks would explore greatly, you know. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's it exactly. If there's any of those British heavyweights that that Richard and Linda approach the most, it's probably the Kinks. Yeah. Uh, or at least this, like this period kinks of you know, basically the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, right around the same time, 74, 75. So, uh, so hokey pokey. So you take those two influences and, and that's really what uh, defines uh, the music. Uh, the title song uh, may or may not uh, be uh, penile or erectile in its themes. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it, it hints at it strongly. Uh, but then you've got songs like Never Again. Uh, there, Thompson, when he is uh, 20 or 21 in 1969, uh, is in a car accident, kills uh, his girlfriend at the time and kills a bandmate of his in Fairport, uh, left, a, left a mark. And so he explores that theme. So here again, we have this sort of spirited, uh, jaunty uh, party sort of uh, uplifting attitude but then also this sort of uh, contemplative, uh, uh, grieving uh, thoughtfulness and bleakness, and mm. so there is that sort of uh, again, and you get that there's there's that tension in a lot of their records where yeah. sometimes the joy is real joy, and sometimes the joy is is uh, about as satirical as it gets. Yeah. Uh, but here, I'd say it's more sort of a, uh, it's not as unified as I want to see the bright lights tonight, but it, it, I think it has those, those two poles that joy on the one end and sort of almost solemnity on the other. I think that the poles are pretty pronounced on this record. Would you agree? Yeah. Um, if you're a youngster, a listener of ours, which I doubt you are, but if you are, <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're listening with young ears, this is basically hokey pokey. Um, if you just listen to the music on this album, just the music with all, like you said, Chris, the jaunty rhythms, the upbeat pub sing-alongs and traditional English music hall melodies, you would think this is the optimistic, sunny side up answer to the bleakness of, I want to see the bright lights tonight. Wrong. (laughs) Uh, a cursory listen to the lyrics reveals an album that is quite thematically cohesive and it's two-way portrayal of the harshness and cruelty of life. It's either people having harsh and cruel things done to them or people escaping this harshness and cruelty by delving into a life of sex, drugs, or materialism. 
Uh, and th that's what runs throughout this record, uh, lyrically speaking. Uh, Thompson's brilliance as a writer is underscored by the fact that while all these character studies and vignettes could fall into being preachy and accusatory, he provides just enough sympathy that allows the listener to at least understand why these characters made their choices. Um, as a recently converted religious person, Thompson was at this time, this is in stark contrast to, to say, George Harrison and his more spiritual material, much of which, in my opinion, is heavy-handed, self-righteous, and a bit overly pious. <laughs> um, the title and opening track, like you said, Chris, Hokey Pokey, it's, it's one of his most audacious songs in how, for Thompson standards, practically drips with salacious metaphors. You know, the ice cream man peddling his ice cream cones, get it? Uh, you know, yeah. and all and all the sexual double entendre all throughout. Now, don't let that swaying, jaunty melody and deliciously nasty guitar solo fool you. The lyric is a rather puritanical commentary on how sex is used and abused, not just for commercial purposes, but for emotional manipulation and psychological control. Um, I'll regret it all in the morning is one of the most harrowing depictions of domestic abuse ever recorded, uh, ranking right up there with some of the best old country blues and folk songs. Uh, what makes it especially effective is how Thompson doesn't just doesn't lay blame nor justify actions. He just describes what happens from both partners' perspectives and ends the song with the strong implication that the cycle will continue, you know. Nope, folks. No happy endings in Richard Thompson's world. Nope. <laughs> um, uh, Georgiana Spree continues the musical motif of upbeat music and somber lyrics. This one of a young girl who has her materialistic rich girl dreams fulfilled a little too soon in life, only to have it dashed when her Prince Charming ditches her. Uh, the sun never shines on the poor is a pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> uh, brilliant lyric. Quote, but most of the people, they're poor in the heart. It's the worst kind of poor you can be. Um, and it really grooves along with a rhythm taken straight from a Mexican mariachi, something you would never identify with Richard Thompson. No, not, um, not really. Um, old man inside a young man is the kind of soaring, anthemic folk ballad that Thompson was becoming known for at this time, complete with its misanthropic lyric about giving up on life after being taken advantage of one too many times. Uh, toward the end of the album is one of the few tracks written pre-Islamic conversion, uh, A Heart Needs a Home. Uh, it's an exquisite, tender acoustic ballad uh, about finding refuge in a world determined to just shit on you and leave you alone. Yeah, um, wonderful, wonderful song. Yeah, oddly enough, the song itself is quite a refuge from all the bleakness of the lyrics on the album. Uh, a bleakness that I argue surpasses that of the previous album simply because of how pointed and specific it is yeah. with its character-driven songs. Oh, cer um, certainly lyrically. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah that's... lyrically. That's, what I'm, that's my point. Um, yeah. This album is the right tonic uh, for those people who ascribe to the words of Kurt Cobain from his song, Francis Farmer Will Have His Revenge on Seattle. I Miss the Comfort of Being Sad. Yeah, I mean that 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 actually is a good connection. Uh you know, and like I said it's the jauntiest uh, the jauntiest kind of uh kind of kind of sadness there is. So 
you know, as we said, you know, they're getting deeper into Sufism and they're growing up and uh, things and tastes are, are changing. And so, you know, Thompson talks about this in the album that, like you said, there's uh, there's this line that he's straddling on this album, on Hokey Pokey, between pre-Sufi and post-Sufi. Yeah. Where he says that there's, in B-Swing, he says there's songs on that record that he wrote several months before the others that he just wasn't emotionally in tune with anymore. Right. And so it was kind of a strange exercise. But that wasn't the strangest exercise to come. Yeah. Uh, that comes next with, which I think personally, uh, in my old age, uh, I've come to think is probably their best record, uh, Pour mm-hmm. Down Like Silver. Yeah. Uh, it's not their most, you know, it's not their most revered. Uh, it's not their most popular. It's not anything that got them on the map, but it's basically just perfect. Uh, so to set this up, uh, they're essentially back to, to square one at this point. Again, Richard is starting to shut out the outside world. He's not watching Top of the Pops anymore. Uh, you know, at this point, you know, T-Rex and glam metal. And and uh, we're on the, the precipice of Judas Priest at this point. We're somewhere between <laughs> deep, deep Purple and Judas Priest. So we're on, the leave- precip- we're on the precipice of punk rock. And we're on the precipice of punk rock. But he's leaving that all behind. Like, literally, he's, uh, he's now uh, wanting to hold on to what he's had musically, uh, meaning the, uh, that hybrid of, of folk uh, and rock. But he also wants to leave behind what he had physically. Uh, again, he, he uh, stopped drinking cold turkey. He wants to leave behind uh, pretension as he knew it which is kind of funny because he, he replaced it with a different kind of uh, pretension because he was buying yeah. all this Asian shit yeah. uh, and all this you know, Asian furniture and stuff. And he had to leave some friends behind. And he also wants to nurture himself spiritually through Sufism or Sufism. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that Sufis are very hardcore about uh, respecting God and disavowing the temptations of the world. And so they had a... Uh, uh, they're they're kind of like the Southern Baptists of of Islam. Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> they sort of they kind of look down at at, at secular uh, romantic rock and roll or just rock and roll in general, you know. It, and right. so, so Thompson, as he's getting drawn in, is is having to walk this fine line where you know he has to find a way to make his message universal enough uh, so that it could go either way either this is a song about uh, relationship uplift or up relationship breaking apart or about your relationship with god or your your spiritual uh, bent uh, in life and so it's probably not a coincidence that the first song on this record is called streets of paradise yeah <laughs> you know which <laughs> awesome song it's, it's it's a rocking song uh in terms of the recording of this record uh much like i want to see the bright lights tonight hokey pokey it was uh, recorded very quickly and very cheaply, uh, but on this record, uh, unlike those records, uh, on those he mostly overdubbed his uh, solos. Uh, on the first couple of uh, you know the first couple records, and with uh, with Fairport and Sandy Denny, his solos would generally be uh, would be overdubbed, uh, you know, over the basic tracks. Here, they didn't do any overdubbing. Uh, yeah. because Thompson explains in B swing and he's explained in interviews over the, the, the year over the years that it just wouldn't have been that compatible. So a lot of it is, uh, him actually playing some of those solos live 
yeah. along with uh, with some of these songs, and it gives it a real power. I think there's a this is the sparest of the record yep. uh, records. It's the uh, it's the rawest, but it's also in an odd way the most rocking. Yeah, uh, and, and it also has I think his most precise, engaging hypnotic guitar work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's. And it's been covered, you know, there's stuff that's been covered on this album by uh, other artists like Bonnie Raitt, uh, you know, dimming of the day has been covered by like 10 different people. Yes. But, but most famously by Bonnie Raitt in 1994. Uh, and it's, it's a, the acoustic guitar playing on that and just the, the tech, the technical, uh, playing and the recording of it is just extraordinary. And so again, it's, it's this quick hit, low budget, low time. Uh, in and out, but they are just on and they are at their uh, at their peak. Uh, I especially am a big fan of Night Comes In, which I guess yeah. I'll, I'll leave it for you to talk about the specifics. Yeah. But again, I think that this album it just has a muscle to it and a confidence to it um, that uh, really is at their peak. I think it's a perfect album. I agree. Um, all right. So what do you do when the leader of the religious sect you belong to, in this case, in this case, one Sheikh Abdul Qadir, forbids you to perform music, particularly on the electric guitar? Well, when you're one of the world's greatest, albeit most unheralded, guitarists and songwriters, you're in a bit of a shitty predicament, especially when you owe your record label, Island Records, one more album. So a compromise was made between Thompson and his spiritual guru, in that all the songs on this album would be spiritual songs or songs aimed at Allah as their source of inspiration and purpose of devotion. Otherwise, he, wa- he wasn't allowed to do what he loved most and did best. Ah, religion. Yep. Anyway, what stands out about this album to me, um, and you alluded uh, to this, Chris, from all the other Richard and Linda albums is how stark and sparse it is. Yeah, the electric guitar is there, as is by the now standard accordion. But aside from acoustic guitars, bass, drums, and there isn't much else. A trumpet here, a clarinet there, a violin there. But they never seem to be intrusive nor blend in in to flesh out the sound as they do in the previous two albums. And considering how the album as a whole is supposed to be about solemn devotion to a higher power, that sparseness and no frills, you know, bone dry production is actually pretty appropriate. Um, it's a testament uh, to Thompson's genius as a songwriter that these songs were all written in a way that can e- really easily be interpreted by secular listeners, such as myself, as moving romantic love songs. Uh, many Christian musicians have tried this through the years to rather crappy effect coming across as lunk-headed, heavy-handed, and utterly lacking in nuance, taste, or restraint. The opposite of this is precisely what makes Thompson one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived. Pretty much, uh, yep. Yeah. Um, you have now rundown tracks. Big, rousing, anthemic sing-alongs with powerful choruses is by now a Richard and Linda staple. And Streets of Paradise, like you said, is one of the very best they ever came up with. Um, for Shame of Doing Wrong has some of the most arresting interplay between electric guitar and accordion on any Thompson recording. And if you didn't already know this, this was about Allah. 
uh, Linda and Richard's passionate vocal interplay would have you think this is one of the best romantic longing songs ever. You know, <laughs> it's nope. crazy. Um, Jet Plane in a Rocking Chair is at this point in their careers the closest this duo ever came up with a genuine potential pop hit oh, yeah. out of out of their heady English folk rock brew. Seriously, speed up the tempo a little, add some fiddles, and you can totally imagine Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner knocking this out at the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> oh, that's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't that's think about is. that, but that's you a good know. call. Yeah. You know. um, Beat the Retreat, um, arguably the centerpiece of the album, is starker than stark, but also one of the most hauntingly beautifully, most haunting, hauntingly beautiful augmentations of melody and lyric in the duo's entire catalog. Yeah. Uh, it's a note-for-note note perfect album, like you said, Chris, and deserving of every bit of the praise heaped on I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. In fact, the first three Richard and Linda albums, the first three of the streak of six, garnered extremely positive reviews in their time, albeit with really poor sales. Yeah. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in the years following, this trilogy of records uh, um, before they went on their two and a half year hiatus, which you will uh, talk about very soon, Chris. It's quite easy to imagine the massive influence these albums had on artists in ensuing years, such as R.E.M., Lucinda Williams, Bonnie Prince Billy, Wilco, and Laura Marling. Like I can't imagine these artists without these three Richard and Linda albums. Your resonant curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to Podbean, and what a move it's proving to be. For the equivalent of nine bucks a month, we get quality, reliable hosting that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. We also get to customize a pretty good website. Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. And so that ends their island uh, chapter. Like I said, Chris Blackwell had signed uh, Richard. They, they were enthusiastic. Uh, at least they, they were, you know, the, the good artists. You know, while they were out there building Marley and uh, whoever else, uh, you know, Richard Thompson was kind of, you know, we'll, we'll support you artistically. But the combination of them being, like you said, a niche, uh, hey, remember Fairport? Eh, well, sort of, uh, kind <laughs> of, kind of band. Uh, the combination of that and uh, and the growing uh, devotion uh, to God and uh, to the Sufi uh, sect there in London, uh, they stopped making music for three years. Uh, the first couple of years, 75, 76, uh, are spent very ensconced in uh, what increasingly was more like a cult-like uh, existence. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. It was one of those things where, okay, are we really praising God or are we stroking the uh, the ego of the guy that's the leader of the sect? Uh, you know, there's such <laughs> right. a thing. 
you know, they, it, it's very prevalent in American Protestant churches, especially what they call narcissistic abuse. Yeah. Where, where the church culture becomes way more about the preacher and the founder of the church than it does about actually worshiping God. Uh, you know, Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, uh, especially uh, all over the American South and the American West uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, it's, uh, it's been, uh, it's been pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary to see that kind of thing. And they basically suffered that. So, they yeah. got too far gone, and Richard caught on to this, and uh, they bailed out uh, after a couple of years and and tried to establish their life on their own. At this point, they the, the Sufi ethos of no music was still biting them, and so for a year after they leave uh, the Sufi life or the, the sort of the compound cult, whatever you want to call it, life, uh, Richard uh, works as an antiques dealer. Uh, during this period and, and not and not a successful one no well he had gotten some leftover advanced music or advanced money from uh, leftover right, uh, right. advanced money from that's what got him through 76 yeah. and then 77 he tries to do antiques dealing and it, it doesn't quite uh, work out for him and so after three years away having not really uh, thought about music or made music or been part of the music business uh, they uh, sign with the uh, the label chrysalis and mm. they're going to make uh, their comeback, um, which Richard says, you know, these these next two records that we're going to talk about, uh, he calls this the equivalent for him of being in a musical no man's land. Uh, and he describes it in the book uh, about these chrysalis, but First Light, which is the first record, and then Sunny Vista, which is the second. These are from 78 and 79. Uh, he says, uh, quote, we were trying to please an audience that did not exist trying to please a record company that seemed to like us on the label for prestige reasons rather than because it had some idea of how to market us. And so, uh, and I think that that's reflected uh, in these albums. So, uh, so we'll talk about the first uh, one of these albums uh, here. Uh, first Light, this is from 1978. And uh, to Thompson's point about, you know, trying to please an audience that didn't exist, this album sounds like they're not exactly sure who they're trying to write for uh, anymore. It's not as it's not as confident and it's not as steeped in uh, the earlier stuff, the the uh, the London folk rock uh, top of the century folk music um, uh, influence uh, where uh, you get Sweet Surrender, which might as well be uh, 70s disco traveling alongside pretty accordions. Uh, it's. It's it's a fun song, uh, you know. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange because there's it's a varied record, and it's they don't really Thompson. I think is struggling to have a unified vision here. But there's you get Sweet Surrender, which is this great kind of up tempo, uh, again almost disco-y kind of song, which makes it enjoy. The idea of Richard Thompson doing disco is just smile-inducing, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but then you've got uh, a, there's one instrumental on it that's very reverent and very like you said, Middle Eastern influenced and very folky. And then there's a couple of uh, love, slower love ballads with, again, sort of empathetic character study uh, lyrics. But it's not as unified and it's not as confident. And there's more of a, a mainstream. And they talk about they, they were working with some L.A. session musicians on this one uh, more than their usual uh, cast of characters. And it's almost like they were, again, they were trying to please the master. Uh, in in Chrysalis, yeah. 
and I think it reflects on that. And so while it's, I guess you could call it lesser Thompson or lesser Richard and Linda, but that's still pretty damn good. Yeah. Listen, like you said, Chris, you know, the quote that Richard said, uh, you know, uh, we were making music for an audience that, uh, that didn't exist. Well, with all due respect to Richard, that audience does exist 20 to 30 to 40 years later. And that's yep. me. That's me, baby. I Absolutely. love this. I love this record. Listen, um, the two albums Richard and Linda put out in the late, later part of the 1970s suffer only when compared to the immaculate triptych of albums they did earlier in the decade. I would argue these couple of albums, First Light and Sunny Vista, contain some of the most beautiful, yes, moving, yes, and wait for it, catchy songs they oh, ever yeah. recorded. No they, may have, they may have still been members of the Islamic Sufi faith that frowned upon his music making. But oddly enough, it was on this album that Richard and Linda started to subtly inject hints of pop hooks. They never did that before. Pop hooks that would grow to beautiful fruition on the next album. But first, let's talk about First Light. Now, like the previous album, Pour Down Like Silver, all the songs are spiritual. Um, lyrically, what can easily be interpreted as love songs or songs longing for a lover are actually longing for Allah. A few of the tracks had lyrics that were directly translated from Sufi and Quranic texts. However, at this point, who gives a shit? When they're written as expertly and delivered as deftly, uh, with as much sophisticated songcraft and exquisite musicianship and vocals as these two provide, it doesn't really matter, man. They may as well be singing odes to Ronald McDonald and Grimace, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> the opening track, Restless Highway, it lacks the bombastic quality that usually kicks off Richard and Linda albums, but it possesses a chorus melody that soars past those other opening tracks and starts the album with an elegiac beauty only Richard Thompson can construct and that only Linda Thompson can vocalize. Um, keep listening and you'll get knocked aside the head with two songs in a row. The first one you mentioned, uh, Sweet Surrender, that has a disco-ish. But the next track, Don't Let a Thief Steal Into Your Heart, is even more disco. Yeah. It's got, it has a more dead straight disco beat, not unlike the Eagles, One of These Nights, by the way. Yeah, which is where, a great song. Yeah. <laughs> where Richard interestingly spices up things this disco Richard and Linda track with a solo that sounds like, even though it probably isn't, uh, Roger McGuinn's Birdsian jingle jangle Rickenbacker sound on some yeah. kind of on some kind of funky steroids. Oh yeah, <laughs> Ro I mean, Roger McGuinn on steroids. That's yeah. the solo on uh, "Don't Let a Thief Steal Into Your Heart." Yeah, great song. That's a good point. It was almost like uh, Thompson was angry at the song. Because, yeah. you know, because that kind of struck me, too, is because kind of like, OK, it's like kind of this corny, lightweight thing. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it, it's not even 12 strings. It's more like 24 strings. You know, it, it just has this sort of like just sort of crazy technical, like uh, how the hell is he doing that kind of like nine finger shit going on? I know. But he, you know what? Even the folky shit is not ignored, though. Nope. Um, the choice, the choice wife is an acoustic instrumental English folk hoedown, yes, you know, and beautiful. that, that wouldn't sound out of place on a Fairport convention album and segues into died for love 
a riveting showcase for Linda's vocals, whose uncanny ability to mix vulnerability, forlornness, grit, and edge. Uh, it made her one of Linda Ronstadt's favorite singers. And frankly, if you're one of Linda Ronstadt's favorite singers, you're a really good fucking singer. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, you're a hell of a fucking singer. Because, yeah. I mean, I mean, R- R- Ronstadt might be the greatest rock uh, female vocalist ever. Uh, so that's that's high praise. Uh, so let's take, while you're talking about Linda, let's just take a pause because we haven't yeah. really focused on her uh, yeah. musically. She just had a real gift uh, yeah. for, uh, for expressing uh, you know, that she once in a great while contributed lyrics or music to Rich, but, you know, Richard did about 92% of, of their stuff, but it was her assignment to translate, uh, Richard's ideas, Richard's emotions, Richard's words and his stories. Yeah. And, uh, she just, um, uh, you know, Richard talks about in the book, you know, Sandy Denny was this huge talent and, uh, kind of her way or the highway type. Yeah, and so she wasn't as amenable to ideas or, uh, or not, I don't want to call it coaching, but you know what I mean, input and uh, maybe try this. Or uh, she wasn't as uh, up to experimentation uh, as Linda proved to be. Right. I guess you know Linda was a very open-minded uh, collaborator. Sure, uh, and um, and so she just you know, just that gorgeous, rich, expressive voice where she never, she was never a shouter. Um, and you know, in, she wasn't a shouter. She was never a whisperer. She wasn't one of these Celine Dion types that, you know, <laughs> you know, that like the up is up and the down is, you know, but yeah. it, was, it was just a sort of very even, uh, matter of fact storytelling, but of just a deep, rich, gorgeous, uh, lilting voice that just gave it a power not in the, again, not the operatic power sense, but in the emotional sense. She just had that gift. She could just channel that. And you give me a story to tell, and I'll tell it in a way that you never imagined we could get there together with, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay, but, that's a very, so, it's a very good point about Linda. Yeah. We were talking about Linda, and now I'm going to talk about Lila. Yeah. track on this album that brings something else new to the Thompson's brew. And what is it? Funk. More specifically, a hybrid of funk, R&B, and funk rock with lyrics inspired by the Quran. Yes, folks, that's a first in rock and roll history. Yeah. <laughs> funk rock with, with Islamic lyrics. Anyway, the album, called, it's, a, it's a great track. It's really good. I, I mean it, I swear. <laughs> um, the album culminates... <laughs> with the title track, First Light, which is this California-style country rocker sung brilliantly by Linda with a chorus melody like the first track that just really just sails to the heavens with a stirring passion and this innocent longing that can even shake this curmudgeonly atheist. Um, In a discography of quite possibly the most criminally and terribly underrated act in rock history, this, in my opinion, is the second most underrated album in their discography. Uh, and so he does First Light, and then the next year uh, comes the, if, if it was a yin and a yang, uh, this was the yang, Sonny Vista. Yep. This was uh, Thompson. He's still scratching around in the dark, and it's still a no man's land, but he's starting to get his footing now. And uh, this album is notable because it's the first time 
really that you can say that we get from Richard and Linda Thompson, modern day social satirical commentary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on uh, the the title track, uh, which is great. Uh, it's a tango, a modern day yeah. tango, a uh, little bit sped up. Uh, and uh, there's a wonderful live clip on YouTube of them performing this song at a theater in 1980 where Linda says, uh, this is a song about how wonderful everything is. It's all pretty wonderful, isn't it? And uh, hint, uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, and so this is sort of a, uh, you know, very kinksy uh, kind of uh, uh, nod to modern uh, dull uh, sort of uh, sheep uh, mentality suburbia. And uh, then you also get uh, the uh, the opener, which is hilarious. Uh, but rocking and hilarious civilization, yeah. Uh, which is uh, at, up to that point may actually, like you said, it's it's hooky. It ain't disco. It's just flat out rock, and yeah. it, it rocks balls. And so there's a lot more of that going on in this record. So that's the one hand is they're starting to get more into the sort of modern look, you know, peering at what's going around them, almost like a, a cynicism or an anger about the world at large. But also, uh, this is, I think, the neatest distillation of that duality that we've talked about, that that uh, tiptoeing they did uh, as far as equating relationships uh, with people and the opposite sex with relationships with God. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, one-two uh, punch uh, on this record um, in the middle of it. Uh, there's, uh, you're not, you're, there's, you're going to need somebody, which I think is one of the top five songs. Oh, they ever totally. totally. Huh? I, totally, I love it. Totally. It's one of their best. It's, it's catchy. It's, it's tuneful. It's emotional. It's honest, but it really is. It's a, it, it's as, uh, lovely and as, uh, awesome, uh, an orthodox song you'll ever get about evangelism. Uh, essentially that's what it is. It's, uh, I mean, this is kind of like, um, a less jokey version of Bob Dylan's you got to serve somebody. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the same spirit. It's, uh, you're going to need somebody. Oh, who is it that you're going to need? Uh, God, uh, and that's, that, that's what they're going for. But the way they do it, it's about that. You know, you've reached uh, the end of the rope or you're, you're in that, you're in the struggle here in life. And so you have to turn that And So, but it's just this, this, it's got this, this, shuffling beat to it and a confidence and assurance, the two-part harmony uh, that goes along with it. It's just masterful. And then uh, the other song is uh, Why Do You Turn Your Back? Uh, which is uh, the opposite tack, which is it's more, it still rocks, but it's more somber. It's basically how could you betray God? And so right. you get the two sides of, of that coin, but they do it in uh, the most self-assured uh, pop hooky way uh, in this entire uh, in this entire streak. So that that's really, and then one other thing to mention about this this record too. So again, it's made the same way. At this point, they're not working with the LA guys. They bring in more of their people, and so you know you get some more. You get more of the traditional uh, touches uh, coming back. But there's a song that ends this record or near the end of the record called Sisters, mm. uh, which is not really about the dissolution of a long time female between uh between female friends 
uh, Linda, as Linda Thompson tells it, and I was doing my research on this, part of the uh, Sufi uh, lifestyle and worldview was polygamy. And so uh, apparently there was some sort of uh, sexual jealousy uh, thing going on between Linda Thompson and Anne McGonagall, who was one of the, uh, the backup singers. Uh, for a long time uh, for the Thompsons, uh, who were, was also involved uh, in Sufi. And so this is a, one of those examples of Richard putting uh, some pretty twisted words in his wife's mouth, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, about, you know, oh, you know, we, we had a fallout because, you know, we had a we had a common lover and now we can't share him anymore. Um, well, uh, but was it Richard who was this guy who had the two women or was it someone else? Uh, as far as I know, I mean, the way that Linda talks about it, it was, it, it sounded like it was Richard. I think really? it was like, okay. yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, I would have to look at it again, but it seems like, uh, you know, her whole thing was, and I can't believe, you know, this, this, this jerk made me sing this, you know? Yeah. See, this, this is the way, uh, the quote that I have, uh, in 1996, there was a compilation of her song of her music called dreams fly away. Um, and you know, this song was included, um, uh, by the way, this song, uh, uh, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous ballad uh, for those yes. of you um, who haven't heard it. It's a showcase for Linda's aching, pained, soulful, oh, yeah. vocal virtuosity. Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's like they have some great ballads. This is in their top five. But anyway, yeah. Linda said about this song that she revealed is not about actual sisters, like you said, Chris, but about a Muslim polygamous relationship, polygamous relationship, quote unquote, you have to be a very big person to make that work. This guy was a creep. Now, would that guy be Richard Thompson? Would she be calling him a creep like that? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's how I read it at first. But I think if you're, I mean, again, I think you, maybe I'd have to read those note, those liner notes or the, you know, the accompaniment that you're quoting from. Yeah. I'd have to read it in its full context, but that's the way it seemed like, you know, maybe, mm. and maybe I was making an extra, you know, extrapolation in my mind right. uh, when he said, you know, this guy was some kind of creep, either that, or it's just, uh, it's the lament that the guy in the relationship came between us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so maybe he's, she's talking about it in the abstract, but, right. but, but who knows? Uh, who knows? Uh, but Anyway, uh, so that's my setup on Sunny Vista. It's it's the second side of the same coin. Uh, for what it's worth, it does so badly that this is kind of a forerunner to Neil and Geffen. Uh, <laughs> it perform it performs so badly that Chrysalis dumps them. Yeah, uh, you know, dumps Richard and Linda from the label. Yeah, so. I know. Hey, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chrysalis Records. Uh, for those of you, may, most of you may not know, uh, it was the home of Jethro Tull and Blondie. Um, this album, um, yes, like you said, Chris, it got, it got lukewarm reviews when it came out, didn't sell at all. Um, and to this day, it, it isn't considered a Thompson classic. However, I am here to go beyond critical revisionism. Not only is it, in my opinion, the single most underrated album in Richard Thompson's catalog, solo or with Linda, it's one of his very best easily in my top 10 RT albums. It's also easily the most musically eclectic of the six Richard and Linda albums. Agreed. Contain, containing, like you said, some of their most rocking, uplifting songs, some of their most beautiful ballads, and some of their most straight up catchiest songs 
full of memorable pop hooks and melodies. This was surely done on purpose since, you know, at this point in their careers, Richard and Linda wanted to sell records. Now, mm-hmm. this, isn't a ba- this isn't a bad thing. After all, the Velvet Underground went totally commercial with the album Loaded. And to this day, it stands as one of the greatest rock albums ever made. You know, so anyway, back to the Thompsons. Um, spiritual songs were still present, but half of the songs on this album are quite secular, which probably, as you alluded to earlier, Chris, signaled a growing disillusionment with that hippie, so, uh, hippie Sufi commune lifestyle they were living at the time. Um, like Richard himself has been rather elusive about this period, but uh, Linda throughout the years has been very outspoken about how unhappy she was with the Sufi commune at this time. Yeah, and um, well, Richard even says it in the book that that yeah. their involvement in during those years is what ruined their marriage. Yeah, totally. Um, but yet, yeah, back to the music. Like you said, the album blasts uh, off of the gate um, with a side rarely heard by them, and that is Angry Richard and Angry Linda. Um, Civilization may not be a punk rock song, but the attitude of the lyrics and the energy of the folk rock on steroids performance belie the very likelihood that the Thompsons were certainly not keeping their heads in the ground throughout the 1970s. Hmm. Um, yeah, the lyrics are a little heavy handed in their sarcasm, but that, but see, to me, that kind of spite is needed when you're writing a song about the complacency and shallowness of society and coming from a writer known for utilizing restraint and detachment, that kind of forwardness is actually shocking and in a good way. And it's refreshing. Um, Richard had always in interviews up to this point expressed a love for Louisiana Cajun music. Yes. He, fin- he finally scratches that itch with Saturday rolling around and unabashed joy of a folk jig. Something the yep. Thompson duo were not necessarily known for. <laughs> very, very, um, very, very Zydeco. Yeah, really much so. Um, nothing prepares the listener, however, for, as you mentioned, Chris, the majestic, you are going to need somebody. Uh, this song needs to be spoken about again. Um, it's one of those songs that roars out of the speakers and makes you think Allah may have actually been in the room when Richard wrote it. Yeah, um, <laughs> seriously. I, I, yeah. I, I already posted uh, uh, on, on our Facebook page, uh, uh, curmudgeonly page, um, our homepage, uh, a live performance of this, uh, this song from 1980. The studio version is three minutes and 46 seconds of the most perfectly constructed, perfectly corded, perfectly worded, perfectly sung pieces of music that cannot be called anything but pop folk. Um, it's the kind of song that makes you wonder why more people haven't covered it and made it a standard. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, just, just that chorus, just that chorus book, you know, that that refrain, you know, the the double refrain, you know, I mean, it's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is a spiritual song, but it works just as well as a plea to find a loved one or romantic partner in your life before it's too late and you grow old and shriveled. And that's how I, that's how I interpreted it when I first heard it. Um, mm-hmm. one of the beautiful things about Sunny Vista is that things don't stay dark for long. Right. Enter justice in the streets. Oh yeah. Richard, Richard and Linda turn up the funk even more so than they did on uh, first light to another gear surpassing Lila from the previous album. Now 
who cares if the chorus is basically the Thompsons chanting Allah over and over again, implying that, of course, the only salvation for humanity and the only way to destroy social inequality is for everyone to come together and give themselves to the grace of the Almighty. Who gives a fuck? When it's this funky, when it's this danceable, and when it's this rocking, Richard and Linda may as well be chanting Cheetos for all I care. You know, whereas the Thompsons perfected the art of sad songs as a balm to soothe depression, like I said earlier, they legitimately go for uplifting on this record. It's a very uplifting record, and it works stupendously. It's the kind of album that makes one think there's a little there's little Richard and Linda could do could do wrong, and almost no genre or subgenre that they could take from and make it their own, except for maybe hip hop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, but in any case, if Sunny Vista is there, Velvet Underground's loaded, intentionally commercial, but and brimming with astounding songs and stagecraft, yet mind-bogglingly unsuccessfully commercial, then their next and final album together would be their Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Take it, Chris. Yeah, and and in some ways, yes. Uh, we're going to talk about Shoot Out the Lights, which, again, might be the other record that y'all have at least heard of, uh, because Shoot Out the Lights has made appearances on uh, best of lists. Uh, not quite as high as it used to. I saw, like, I think I think it was Rolling Stone at the top 50 at some point in, yeah. in the 90s. Uh, and it is a wonderful album. So let's let's set this one up. So, again, like I said, so they do uh, these two records, these No, Man Lands, uh, no Man's Land uh, records uh, together. Um, and now they don't have a label. And so now they're going to try to, they're swinging for the fences, but they're getting back to more. I think Richard is finding his voice again. And of course, part of that, uh, voice, uh, involves the strain, uh, in his marriage, uh, to, uh, Linda, like we said, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, uh, them, uh, the, the tension and them growing apart as people, as part of that experience when they come out the other side. And, uh, so this starts about a year after Sunny Vista, about 1980. Uh, they're going to, uh, to work, uh, what was his name? McGarrity? Jerry Rafferty. For those of you who don't know the name, Jerry Rafferty was in the 1970s, in the mid, early to mid seventies in the band Steeler's Wheel, most known for their big hit single, their only hit, Stuck, Stuck in, in the, the middle. middle with You, yeah. made famous also in the movie Reservoir Dogs. Stuck in the middle with you, that one. Yep, yep. Yeah, I got you. So they're so they're gonna work. Uh, so they're gonna work with him, and uh, so they did all this. But he has now, uh, Rafferty. He has now fallen into uh, serious alcoholism, that is yeah. uh, really putting a stain on the uh, the proceedings. And I guess it was a real mess. And they now they have these tapes that uh, Thompson does not like and does not have any fond memories to take away from the sessions. So that gets shelved. Uh, about a year later, uh, Joe Boyd, who was uh, Fairport, Fairport Convention's manager slash A&R guy, uh, comes back along and says, hey, you know, uh, we need to get you back out there. And uh, why don't you go use my studio on the cheap? And so they already have these songs in the can plus a couple of new ones, they go in there and they cut this record in what, about four days or something. Uh, and it becomes shoot out the lights, 
the funny part is, is that when they're doing it, they're still together, but maybe at the beginning of the end. By 82, they're at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it becomes an unintentional divorce record. But yeah. one of the best ever made. Uh, uh, and, and so it kind of works out that way. And so uh, what you'll notice about it is it's definitely a construct of the very early 80s. Uh, when you first hear sure. it, when I first heard it 20 something years ago, I was like, what is this, Clapton? Because, <laughs> you know, you go from hearing, I want to hear the, I want to see the bright lights tonight, which is, you know, a very sort of 70s, uh, folky, uh, of that era, you know, that London era between like the late 60s and the mid 70s is very much right. that aesthetic. And then you listen to this and, um, and it's like, what the fuck is this Clapton again? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, so that that's the striking thing, but it's also striking is this is where Richard finally finds his voice and his confidence as a guitar hero and as a guitar god. Uh, he has been subtle for the most part, and you know, sort of subtle and artistic and in service uh, of the songs uh, up until this point, but and he still is, but here he's he's got magic fingers and. He's he's his playing is at its most emotional, at its at its uh, most uh, searing and aggressive and uh, just all of the varying styles that defined him as a guitar player, whether it's country music, whether it's blues, uh, whether it's uh, straight folk, uh, you know, any, you know, the, the Middle Eastern uh, uh, stuff, even surf rock in some respects. A lot of it comes uh, comes into this record, and uh, it's got some of the most beautiful songs uh, I think ever recorded right. on it. Um, and you'll talk about it in a minute. The, the highlight on it is "Walking on a Wire," uh, which again is about a, a dissolving relationship, but features just this incredible melody. And yeah. it's the kind of thing that you can't. There's certain songs in rock and roll and popular music that you cannot fully appreciate until you sing along, yeah. you know, you know, you take, you take on the, uh, the role of the singer and sing along and you realize just how powerful, uh, that song is emotionally, uh, and about the dissolution of it. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And eight songs, uh, each song is incredible. And Richard is just on. I mean, that's him at his most confident and uh, not as angriest. That's his most confident record. You know, yeah. he, he knows he's found his voice again and he's living in the modern world. Uh, this is not uh, anywhere close. To, this is not steeped in Sufism or Sufism anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so it's back living in, in the real world but with an assurance that you just didn't get until now and you got it. And I think that's one of the, re uh, Thompson becomes a legitimate hero, uh, guitar hero on this record. And I think that's the, why, that's, that's why it's so uh, revered. Yeah. Shoot out the lights, 1982. All right. The breakup album, you know, the big breakup album is something of a tradition in popular music. Um, from Frank Sinatra's 1955 album in the wee small hours, all the way to Billie Eilish's happier than ever from last year. Yep. Uh, artists in every genre have engaged in this tradition. 
Why? Well, more often than not, and for some reason only known to the Cosmos, the breakup album usually ends up being some of the artist's best work. Um, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks is arguably his greatest record. Uh, Beck's Sea Change is one of his career-defining albums. Uh, Lucinda Williams' album, West, is one of her masterpieces. Uh, uh, Marvin uh, Gaye. Yeah, what are you saying? Oh, I'm saying Octung Baby, which uh, is partially uh, more than half about Edge's divorce. Oh, yeah, it's true. Forgot about That's a good one, yeah. yeah. And uh, That's a good one. Um, Marvin Gaye's Hear My Dear is oh, both great album. One, one of the most audacious and brilliant albums of his in his repertoire. And... Both Joni Mitchell's Blue and Fleetwood Mac's Rumors were in the top 10 in Rolling Stone's recent list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Now, Shoot Out the Lights, the final album in Richard and Linda's impeccable run of brilliant folk rock albums, undoubtedly belongs on any sensible person's list of 10 greatest breakup albums ever made. And if it isn't, that person needs to reevaluate their taste in music. Now, as you alluded to, Chris, uh, needless to say, by the time of the writing and recording of the album, which spanned the period of 1980-1981, Richard Thompson really didn't give a shit anymore about writing songs to Allah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The album has several lyrical themes, betrayal, separation, loss, but the tone and the feeling of the record is pretty consistent throughout. And to me, it's always been a sense of desperation. Yeah. Um, you can hear desperation in that rockabilly gallop of the opening track, Don't Renege on Our Love. You can hear desperation on the aching, mournful, walking on a wire, which you just talked about. Quite possibly the greatest ballad the Thompsons ever produced, and that's saying something. Um, you can hear desperation, lyrically at least. Just emotion. The- yeah. yeah. No, no, the one before that, the oh. angular, that, that new wave-ish sound of man in need. Oh, which, yeah. Which sounds quite a bit oddly like early talking heads. Um, yeah, no, can- <laughs> no, it does. Yeah, 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 like you said, it's 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 new wavy. And uh, it, it's interesting because, like you said, there's a desperation, but it's 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 the opposite case desperation. It's almost kind of like, I really wish I was still here with you, Linda, but I'm not. So now I'm a man in need for another woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And you can also hear the desperation in the anguished, bluesy title track where Richard unleashes one of his most epic, scorching guitar solos ever, um, which leads to the question, you know, what exactly is this desperation about? I mean, even though my marriage is not on the rocks and Richard and Linda's clearly was during this time, I am married nevertheless, so I can ascertain that it's a desperation for understanding, for empathy, and, and for not being hurt anymore. Yeah. And hey, people just grow apart sometimes, and some marriages aren't meant to last. I will let Richard explain this himself in a quote from his memoir, B-Swing, which you've quoted from a few times already, Chris. Um, here's, here's, here's the quote. It, meaning the shootout the lights period, was also the end of our marriage after 10 years. Our time with the Sufi community had put a tremendous strain on our relationship, and we barely survived that. We emerged as substantially different people, and I'm guilty of falling out of love with Linda and wanting to end it. That was a tough time for everyone, especially our children, and the wounds are still healing. Yeah. But hey, 
Mm-hmm. Let's end. Let's end this on a good note, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shoot out the lights was a critically adored sensation of a record upon release, finishing number two in the Village Voices Paz and Jot poll of 1982, mm-hmm. and in the top ten of several other music publications. Its status has endured throughout the years. In a 1989 issue, uh, I think you I think you alluded to this, Chris. Rolling Stone placed it at number nine in their list of 100 greatest albums of the 1980s. And in 2012, it came in at number 332 on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Inexplicably and unfucking fathomably, it was left off entirely in Rolling Stone's 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums ever. Proving once again that the younger generation of music critics have the most appalling taste in music since the pre-rock and roll era. Yeah, pretty more, much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More importantly, though, Shoot Out the Lights kickstarted and re-energized Richard Thompson's solo career. He got a lot of airplay on college radio. He became an in-demand touring performer. And the last 40 years has only seen his stature and legend grow. At least among hardcore music geeks and music critics like oh, us. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because according to the book, he lives in New Jersey uh, yeah. of all places. But he, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's lived his life on the road and he's continued to uh, pump out uh, some really strong music. Uh, uh, we'll keep it short. Uh, folks, check out his 1991 record, Rumor and Sigh, uh, which album. is wonderful. Uh, his 1999 record, Mock Tudor. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has some incredible stuff on it uh, as well. But he also composed the amazing and beautiful score to the documentary Grizzly Man, which yes. is one of the most fascinating films, uh, documentaries you will ever see. Uh, and uh, he also had a, a tour, I believe he's done it a couple of times, called a thousand, 1,000 Years of Music. Uh, if you go on uh, YouTube, there's at least one recording of a full set. It's literally like it says, it's a thousand years of music with him interpreting stuff from like, you know, the fucking uh, nomad uh, era. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, uh, back in Magna Carta, he's got it covered. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So he's done that. Uh, Also worth noting that Linda Thompson has uh, kept going as a solo artist and she's released some really great records. Uh, She's had, uh, she had one in the early aughts, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, and so she's managed to keep herself out there and, and to keep going and, and relevant. And then also uh, their son, Teddy, uh, is uh, something of a prodigy uh, himself. Uh, very good singer, very good guitarist. Uh, he's done albums with Linda. Uh, he's closer with Linda than Richard. Um, and so, you know, they've done records together and they, you know, just as solid on the two part harmony. Uh, and so, um, ultimately, uh, if we have to uh, wrap this up, Arturo, what would you say is uh, succinctly the legacy of Richard and Linda Thompson? All the people they've influenced and all the people who have covered them. Uh, most of you may not know who Richard and Linda Thompson are, but you definitely know all the people who have professed love for their music, have professed being influenced by them, and have covered their songs. Now, I'm going to do, I'm going to wrap this all with a nice ribbon and bow. I've already mentioned artists who have been undoubtedly influenced and or inspired by the duo, such as R.E.M. By the way, guitarist Peter Buck has probably set a record with how many times he's name-checked 
Richard Thompson in interviews. Uh, also, uh, uh, did, didn't REM cover the wall of death? Oh yeah. I'm getting there. Okay. Um, uh, I mentioned Wilco. I mentioned Bonnie Prince Billy. I mentioned Lucinda Williams. I mentioned Laura Marling. I will also add to that list, if I may be so boldly opinionated. Okay. Decemberists. Yes. Bright Eyes. Yes. Beck. Yes. Sunvolt, whose leader, Jay Farrar, was in the band Uncle Tupelo with Wilco's Jeff Tweedy. Um, Elvis Costello, a longtime and outspoken admirer of Richard Thompson. And David Byrne, Talking Heads frontman, also a vocal RT fan. There have been not one, but two Richard Thompson covers albums, both of which came out in 1994. Artists slash bands of renown that have covered Thompson songs with and without Linda are R.E.M., the punk band X, Bonnie Raitt, like you mentioned, Chris, Bob Mould, singer-guitarist from Husker Du, Evan Dando of the Lemonheads, Los Lobos, Dinosaur Jr., Graham Parker, David Byrne and Victoria Williams. Not enough. Not enough, huh? Here are some other big names who have graced Richard Thompson by covering his songs. The Neville Brothers, Bonnie Raitt, Emmylou Harris, Dave Gilmore, for those who don't know, the guitarist from Pink Floyd, and Alison Krauss. Now, Richard Thompson himself has many albums in his discography, but with Linda, he made only six, and they are the foundation of his legacy. Folks, listeners, you owe it to yourselves if you call yourselves music fans to seek these albums out and listen to them, hopefully in their entirety and in chronological order. That collection of six albums is one of the most beautiful, enduring, and endlessly rewarding bodies of work in rock history, period. So everybody, welcome to the final segment of our show. And this is, of course... The Vault, where we get old albums from the past and talk about them and recommend them and say why we love them. Of course, this episode is about Richard and Linda Thompson, most known for their wonderful records of the 1970s. So Chris and I, we chose some early 1970s rock and roll. Some of it gnarly, some of it soulful, some of it glammy. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I I would say that that's a pretty good uh, description. Uh, this this runs the gamut from A to about Z Z Z Z Z. Uh, uh, these these two artists, it's it, it, they're actually not as uh, divergent as you would think. No, not at all. Let's start with mine. My vault pick is an admittedly very obscure psychedelic progressive rock band from Sweden called. Trad Gras Och Stenad. Now let me spell it out. T-R-A-D comma G-R-A-S space O-C-H and then Stenad S-T-E-N-A-R. From the Swedish, it translates into trees, grass, and stones. Now, I'm mentioning both psychedelic and progressive rock because their self-titled debut came out in 1970, right around the time that psychedelia turned into prog rock. The bands whose names are usually bandied about in this discussion are bands such as Pink Floyd, King Crimson, Yes, and so on. But not on the curmudgeon rock report. No. (laughs) On this podcast, we pride ourselves on being educational 
and talking about obscure bands artists that you, our listeners, have never heard of and possibly will never hear of anywhere else. Therefore, Tarad Gras Oxtenad it is. Yeah. Okay. So, like I said, trees, grass, and stones is what their name means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, sh- I should have thought about that. But <laughs> okay. Uh, where, where, where's the Indians on the album covers? Yeah, I know, right? If that sounds very hippy-dippy-ish, it's because that's the kind of band these guys were. Uh, they formed in the summer of 1967, of course, as a Parsons Sound. And although they never released an official album, they did do home recordings and demos between 67 and 68 that were released over 30 years later. Um, these recordings find a band very fond of droning sounds, tape loops, and augmenting traditional guitar, bass, drums, rock instrumentation with cellos, violins, flutes, and saxophones. Wonderful. Uh, in 68, they uh, changed their name to International Harvester and actually got to release an album titled Sov Got Rosemary, Sleep Tight Rosemary, which was an interesting merger of traditional Swedish folk music, lots of flutes, a cappella chanting, odd to non-Scandinavian ears percussion, and a Velvet Underground-inspired experimental rock. They shortened their name to just Harvester in 1969 and released the album Hemat, which was, no joke, recorded entirely in a small cafe owned by the Youth League of the Swedish Communist Party. Nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why, of course. Uh, what lyrically and thematically tied this early incarnation of the band together was what they saw as the gentrification and industrialization of Sweden, resulting in the erosion of traditional Swedish culture enforced upon them by the Western powers that be, i.e. the U.S. and the rest of Europe. I guess nobody told these guys that the Soviet Union was just as preoccupied with industrialization and factorization, but hey, what the hell. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in the middle of the decade, they saw many houses destroyed and replaced by buildings and skyscrapers and rural areas being converted to suburbs full of concrete and glass. Understandably, this all planted the seeds of the lyrical agenda of international harvester slash harvester, and this strong environmentalist and naturalist streak would soon develop without the politics to inform Tradgras Oxtenad. Yes, there was another name change, but uh, this time there was also a paring down of the lineup. Guitarist Bo Anders Person bassist Torbjorn Abeli and drummer Tomas Mera Gartz kept only one of the classical string instrumentalists, cellist Arnie Eriksson, and converted him to guitar. Uh, They would go on to embrace a much more guitar-driven, heavier rock sound that was influenced by Jimi Hendrix and Cream. Um, Their music would grow to demonstrate all the hallmarks of progressive rock, changing keys, tricky time signatures, unconventional chord progressions, unexpected tempo changes, etc., without sounding anything like their British contemporaries, most likely owing to the fact that they never really abandoned the traditional Swedish folk music that served as the bedrock for this new sound. So, what did this new sound actually sound like? 
Well, it starts off with an eight-minute version of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower that comes off like a proto-metal procession march with a molten lava guitar solo searing through the whole track. Um, up next is another cover, the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, that starts off faithfully enough to the original, but over the course of 11 minutes, it just kind of unfolds upwards into the cosmos with interweaving, bubbly, almost Jerry Garcia-like guitar solos and notes and maniacal drumming. Um, only the bass line gives the listener any idea that this is still satisfaction. Um, other standout tracks, uh, Saningen's Silver Flood, translating into the Silver River of Truth, which maintains a walloping rhythm similar to the previous song, but rides a beautifully delicate melodic slide guitar throughout. Um, you have uh, uh, Tegenborg Svalsen, the Tegenborg Waltz, which takes an otherwise pretty waltz time classical tune and gives it a hammering sludge metal treatment a la Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah. And then you have Svarta Parla, the Black Pearl, which is this haunting, traditional-sounding Scandinavian folk ballad that's as dark and menacingly mesmerizing as detuned guitars and creepy violins can be. Oddly enough, this was their last studio album. They would go on to record three more albums, but all of them would be recorded live in outdoor festival conditions throughout Sweden and Denmark. Um, keeping in line with their environmentalist beliefs, I read somewhere that the members of the band believed the best way to capture the sound of musical energy was within the context of humankind communing with nature away from the synthetic and stifling environment of a recording studio. Makes them sound or, like wolves in the throne room, for Christ's sake. Or maybe they were just too cheap to pay for a studio. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> in any case, after releasing, you know, pretty much, after releasing four albums that sold remarkably quite well, they sold quite well as far as indie labels go in Scandinavia and in other parts of Europe. Yeah. They broke up in 1973. The core three members, guitarist person, bassist Abeli, and drummer Gartz, reunited in 2004 and toured the U.S. through 2005. Unfortunately, the members of the rhythm section, the latter two, they died in 2010 and 2012, respectively, putting an end to the original lineup. Nevertheless, if you listeners out there like me have an unending thirst for freaky deaky early 1970s heavy rock that mashes up dark spectral Scandinavian folk with metal psychedelia and prog rock. Look no further than Tragras Oxtenad. Yeah, I, I am so glad that you turned me on to this band, Arturo, <laughs> because they're uh, they they are they're really good. I mean, you, you want to talk? I mean, the best kind of quote unquote stoner rock or stoner metal. Yeah is the stuff that's really tense and it has it, it's it's like soulful industrial it's yeah. tense as hell it it's got this kind of slow creeping rockness to it i got to say this has become one of my i like this cover of all along the watchtower uh <laughs> <laughs> better than uh even well well obviously besides hendrix's uh yeah you've got the hendrix version in in the original version but this is right there i mean this this is just awesome 
Uh, and then, like you said, satisfaction. Uh, oh, those those crazy Scandinavians. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's awesome, and it's just it's tense, and it's just gnarly. Like you said, gnar, gnar, uh, what's the Swedish word for gnarly? <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's what they should have named the band. It's uh, uh, trees, grass, and stones. Like I said, you know, like we you know we covered wolves in the throne room uh, about yeah. two months ago now or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. it's the same kind of stuff. Oh, you know, we're 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 singing to the trees. Uh, no, you're not. You're stoned off your ass. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, but anyway, but no, God bless them. I love this. I I I like this band, and and so uh, folks, go find it. They're on. This album is on Spotify, and they're all over YouTube. Uh, you know, bands like this. YouTube's the greatest thing to ever happen to, uh, quote unquote, lost rock and roll. Because yeah. any kind of lost rock and roll, somebody out there has put it up on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's, sure. more, it's even more reliable than Spotify. On that note, we switch from, oh, those crazy industrial metal or industrial uh, kind of sludgy rock of the early 70s to uh, somebody you probably have actually heard of but don't know much <laughs> about, uh, and that's Todd Rundgren. Uh, Todd Rundgren, uh, once upon a time, uh, was a star of 70s rock and one of the foremost uh engineering and sort of sound experimental uh, geniuses uh, that there was. And so uh, I'm covering his album from 1972, uh, Something Anything. And so let's talk about this for a little bit. Uh, where to start with Todd Rundgren? Uh, how about a run through, uh, a quick run through of his resume? Philly kid comes of age as the Beatles and the Stones are hitting America. Uh, moves to L.A., finds modest success with a fuzzed-out four-piece garage rock band called Nas, or Naz. Uh, Naz, yeah. I think it was the Naz. The Naz. The Naz. N-A-Z-Z. Not, not, not the rapper. Naz. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, is he's such an admirer and adherent of Laura Nairo, which is obvious when you listen to his best stuff. Nero, uh, by the way. It's Nero. Nero, not Nairo. Nero. Okay. Yeah. Uh, never heard it pronounced. He secures a meeting with her. Uh, and... He actually got an offer from her to lead her band or be her lead producer. But out of loyalty to not to Naz, he turns this down. And then within a year, gets his ass fired from Naz. <laughs> <laughs> and so now he's no longer uh, there. So he moves back east and he becomes the sort of the inaugural studio wizard of Bearsville Studios up there in Woodstock. And he engineers at their request, uh, the band's album, Stage Fright. And so he begins to get this um, profile as an ace guy in the studio as an engineer uh, and a producer. Uh, from there, uh, he is able to uh, secure uh, a deal, and he's now going to put out his own stuff. Uh, at first, he uh, uses the moniker Runt, and he mm -hmm. releases a, a two albums uh, under the name Runt. Uh, gets him enough cachet to where he now is going to record an actual uh, solo record, which is this one we'll talk about in a few minutes, Something Anything. Uh, so he does that, becomes a legitimate pop star with a couple of hits and a huge profile, and he promptly gets bored with that of being an ultra-competent wonderkind, and he takes a shitload of acid, and he cranks out a marvelously strange record called A Wizard, A True Star. You ever heard it, Arthur? 
yeah, that came after something, anything, right? Yeah, it was right after it. And so this is yeah. that this is kind of like the uh, the equivalent of Neil doing Harvest and then following the time fades away. This is even <laughs> worse. Uh, so this is like tearing it all down. So now he's so he swerves his uh, way from here. He some he ends up becoming a superstar producer. Uh, he produces uh, "We're an American Band" by Grand Funk Railroad. He uh, produces uh, the New York Dolls' yep. uh, first record and subsequent releases by them. And uh, most famously, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, he produces "Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell." Oh boy! Yep. And so Andy also, but he redeems himself. He also uh, uh, produced XTC's "Skylarking," mm. which is a great record. From 1986. So he does that. And then from the 80s onward, he becomes a true multimedia renaissance man. Uh, early innovator of computer graphics and interactive music software. Uh, he also continued to release albums uh, as certain music and styles tickled his fancy. Uh, the most fun of these, and I encourage you, everyone to find this, is uh, the 2011 record uh, Todd Rundgren's Johnson, which is a oh, 12... God. It's a 12-song tribute to, hey, hey, now, bluesman Robert Johnson. And so this is Todd Rundgren in Todd Rundgren style uh, playing uh, covers of Robert Johnson blues songs, which is not a surprise because he actually got his start uh, in blues uh, band covers, bar band blues uh, covers. And so now, you know, look, as time has gone on and Rundgren has become content to pursue his passions and has achieved eschewed anything resembling a limelight uh his influence and visibility has perhaps wanes uh yep, it, sh- it has it shouldn't because uh and the most shining testament to this uh is something anything which is an epic and at times epically strange double album i love it have for years uh back in eight, 1989 uh axel rose uh told rolling stone in a long form interview feature uh, that the album was his current favorite, uh, while also mentioning that his two lifelong go-tos were Nevermind the Bollocks and uh, Queen 2. Uh, right on there, Bill Bailey, uh, <laughs> for sure. So uh, what is it that excited Axel and uh, scores of other musicians for uh, two decades plus? Uh, arguably, uh, this album is uh, four EPs in one, uh, and it was I suspect it was willfully designed uh, that way because, I mean, think about it. It's 25 songs and 90 minutes. It begins with a wonderfully romantic male impression of Carol King uh, on I Saw the Light. Yep. Uh, and it ends with a body cranked out bar blues workout called Slut. Uh, I don't think the album was made with cohesion uh, in mind. And so it's really better to look at it as four parts, which actually Rungern, I think, wants us to because he named each side of this four-sided double LP. Uh, Part one is a bouquet of ear-catching melodies, which uh, is a perfect name for it because that's what it is. Uh, Part two is called the cerebral side, which where more of that Laura Nero uh, influence starts to come out. Uh, part three is called The Kids uh, Get Heavy, uh, which uh, contains one of his most revered songs, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then part four is called Baby Needs a New Pair of Snakeskin Boots, a pop operetta. 
And so, so he kind of willfully breaks these down. So he recorded the majority of the album in Los Angeles. Uh, he played all of the instruments himself, at least for the stuff out there. Uh, he was able to parlay uh, the little bit of success he had and a growing reputation for his studio genius, and that afforded him the freedom to do this. And so you know, he would spend his uh, days in the studio, and he was such an obsessive that he actually had an 8-track installed in his living room at his apartment. And so he's working all the time. Uh, process definitely fueled by both weed and speed, uh, specific, yeah. specifically Ritalin. And something, you know, Rungren has done interviews where he said, yeah, I was cranking out songs in 20 minutes, man. Yeah, I bet you were, because, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he said weed and speed will do that to you. Uh, so then, you know, he's got all this material that he's recorded, and an earthquake hits L.A. in early 72, and an understandably, wait for it, shook up Rungren, uh, retur- yeah, returns to New York. Uh, he's got enough material that he's got the potential to bump things up to a double album, which he did. And he held a couple of uh, live in the studio recording sessions in both New York at the recording plant and up there in Woodstock at Bearsville. And it produced some of the goofiest but also prettiest stuff on the record. And uh, those uh, New York sessions are what make up uh, that uh Baby needs a new pair of snakeskin boots. Uh, side, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, yeah. part four. So uh, the album spawned a couple of hits, uh, and are both of which are longstanding classic rock radio stamp, uh, staples. Uh, the aforementioned "I Saw the Light" and "Hello, It's Me." Uh, each song is marvelous, uh, particularly "Hello, It's Me," uh, which yeah. began life on Naz's self-titled 1968 debut. Uh, back then, it played like a close cousin of those beautiful but oddly spooky ballads from post-Brian Wilson Meltdown-era Beach Boys records. Uh, it'll especially make huge fans of the Beach Boys record Friends smile, uh, what with the congas and the chimes and the pained post-adolescent uh, vocals and harmonies. Uh, but here, on Something Anything, uh, Hello, It's Me takes on the form of a maturely rendered blue-eyed soul song, uh, complete with a horn section and organ licks, uh, which does the magic trick of converting a lyric of relational, maybe sexual longing from something sort of creepy into something actually, uh, at least on the surface, sweet and charming. Uh, as you can imagine, a masterfully made 90-minute record such as this one has many... Other highlights uh, for me, here are some of the other standouts. Uh, there is the seminal power pop anthem, Couldn't I Just Tell You. Uh, if you haven't heard it, yes, you have. Uh, that's, how, that's how influential it is. Tight, soaring, gorgeous, perfect for a sunny uh, beach day with your bros and your best girl. Uh, you can just hear Cheap Trick, Weezer, Fountains of Wayne, and totally. Cal- Countless other power pop bands being born in the song's wake. Uh, there's the song Wolfman Jack, which is a wonderfully reverent tribute to the Motown sound. Uh, think of Smokey Robinson at his rockingest, while backed by the Supremes, harmonizing at their highest, funkiest point. And then there's really the entirety of Side Four, which is a seven. <laughs> that's a seven-song stretch. Uh, you know. Uh, Basically, you know, Arturo and I come from basically the first uh, CD era. And so uh, we were the first generation that was taught not to think of turn things in terms of sides, 
which is too bad because back in the uh, vinyl days, that actually was a thing and it mattered. Uh, and so side four is this one. It's a strange but really unified side. And so what you get, it starts with a lo-fi overture medley of the old tune Money. That's what I want. Uh, mixed in with a silly and perhaps improvised jam called Messing with the Kid. Uh, that is followed by a sweet soul ballad called Dust in the Wind. No, not that dust in the wind. Hey, hey. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, f- that is followed by Piss Aaron, which is a country-inflected mid-tempo ditty uh, that features uh, longtime Neil Young sideman Ben Keith on pedal steel. Then you get a Hello, It's Me, uh, which uh, it's pretty obvious, by the way, that these are all uh, like one takes or live takes because there's a lot of like silly banter uh, going oh, on totally. uh, before uh, they go into that. And hello, it's me get some of that too. Then the next song, which has the funniest so- uh, song title on the record, uh, some folks is even whiter than me, but <laughs> uh, it actually is a pretty sophisticated uh, soul. Like, I guess it's got a slinky sax and percussion driven groove. Uh, that's way more, again, way more sophisticated than the set I would suggest. Uh, here, I think you could arguably say that Rundgren out Steely Dan, Steely Dan. And he could do that yeah. when he wanted to. Actually, he could probably do anything he wanted to at any time. He was that talented. Uh, that's followed up by You Left Me Sore, which is a tenderly rendered breakup lament. And then that album closer I talked about earlier, Slut, which features this funnier than it has a right to be lyric. She's got saggy thighs and baggy eyes, but she loves me in a way that I can still recognize. <laughs> oh, that's just lovely. So uh, ultimately, Todd Rundgren could have written uh, the perfect pop and obvious musical gifts to the top of the pop superstar mountain in the 1970s if he had wanted to, but he didn't want to. So while we got a lot of innovative stuff and OK, we also got bad out of hell in the years that followed, uh, we never got another something, anything. Uh, that's okay, though. Uh, the album stands is perhaps the most underrated double album in all of rock. It's absolutely magnificent. Yeah, it's, it's definitely his best album, and here's the reason why. Um, I'm going to praise him here, and then I'm going to criticize him as well. Um, throughout the years, if, if you follow Todd Rundgren's discography, especially throughout the 70s, by the 80s, he was terrible. Well, like, uh, like, come on, bang yeah. on the drum all day. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that is catchy. But anyway, um, like his, his discography, there are many sides to Todd Rundgren. You have the perfect pop songsmith Todd Rundgren. You have the Brill Building, Tin Pan Alley, Laura Nero worshiping uh, piano guy Todd Rundgren. You have the heavy metal hard rock Todd Rundgren. You have the prog rock Todd Rundgren, which was in the band Utopia. Yep. And then you have... The stupid, the, the, the stupid, dopey, schlock humor Todd Rundgren. Yeah, he, um, he, he definitely wanted to be Frank Zappa when he grew up. Right. And the thing about this album, Something Anything, it ties all of those aspects together, but underpins them with really, really good, tight songwriting. Oh, yeah. Even, even the silly shit is well-written and catchy and hooky and melodic. And that's what makes this album his best album. It takes all every aspect of Rundgren and in, in a weird way kind of economizes it. Yeah. And, tie, and ties it together and strapped down to the earth and, and is tied down with really good songcraft and songwriting. Now, here's the bad thing about Todd Rundgren. 
whenever he goes off and ventures off into like all his other genres and subgenres and styles, he's never quite as good as when he's being Pop Rundgren. Right. Pop Pop Rundgren is the best Rundgren. And that's what you see in something, anything more than anything else, more than on any other Rundgren album is Pop Rundgren. Rundgren's at his best when he was being pop. I, I think Utopia is a piece of crap. That band sucked. That's a shitty. It's like one of the worst prog rock bands ever. I'm not a fan of stupid schlock jock uh, humor, uh, Rundgren, which has not aged well at all. No, uh, not by, at by, all. By, mod, by modern times. And I'm not a really big fan of that whole Tin Pan Alley, um, you know, uh, uh, Laura Nero type stuff. It's not that, my no, kind no, of music. No, that personally. stuff is good. You know me. I'm I'm, I'm definitely more of a Cole, uh, yeah. Cole Porter guy than you are. Yeah. But so I don't I, I don't mind I, that stuff. Yeah, I, I'm not a Broadway musical dude. So anyway, but anyway, but for, for me, the best Rundgren is the pop Rundgren. That's why this album is at the be- is, is is his best. He was so good at the pop stuff, and he he just yeah. had, you know, he had that craft. But he didn't want to be pegged as a male Carol King. And he, maybe he's not, he's one of these like perfectionist weirdo geniuses. Maybe he just didn't have the self-esteem ultimately. I mean, he thought that the pop pop Todd Rundgren was the lazy Todd Rundgren. No, just, just because you can crank one of these things out in 20 minutes doesn't make you lazy. It makes you brilliant. Yeah. Uh, And, but he, I think he just, that was the thing. He, he got bored uh, with that and, or he, said, you know what, this is beneath me or something like that. And so he yeah. went off and did all that other uh I like a Wizard of True Star though. That's that's a that's a nutty record. It's it's fun. It is. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, but but then also again, I think in terms of innovation, I mean the stuff he was doing in the eighties and nineties, uh what was the one thing he did where he he released this it's not really an album, but he released what amounted to like a disc. It was like a soft it was like a software program with like 110 second musical excerpts. And what it did is that, that there were many songs hidden within these 10 second uh, things, but it allowed people to stitch them together. It was kind of like <laughs> choose, choose your, the choose your own adventure of songwriting, song making. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, and apparently I guess you could, you could find some brilliant little songs within all that, but right. he did it in 10 second excerpts in the, like for a computer. <laughs> Uh, interface and he also did like a lot of stuff like you know colors and he did a lot of innovative early video type stuff i mean a song of his is one of the earliest videos that mtv played uh was one was one of his so so in a lot of ways again so he's one of these you know kind of just powerful geniuses maybe disturbed and disturbing in some respects and and lift tyler's father um (laughs) Yeah. Also, not no Steven Tyler. Well, I, okay, it's Steven Tyler's seed, but Todd Rundgren raised uh, helped raise the right. kid. So, and, and she still ended up looking like Todd Rundgren. How was that possible? Oh no, she she <laughs> no she started. Yeah, well, yeah, she she looked like Todd. Well, Todd Rundgren with uh, Steven Tyler's lips. You know, <laughs> that's about the only thing she inherited from from Steven Tyler. But anyway, yeah, like I said, Rundgren is one of those guys that he could have been. Uh, you know, he had the charisma. He had all of that. He he had the talent. If he had wanted to do the male Carol King thing, he would have been enormous. And he would have been yeah. a good star. But he chose the uh, the, the the lesser uh, path. 
Now, again, you know, he still ends up with some awesome stuff out of that. Say what you want about Bad Out of Hell. Uh, I've always been an admirer of Steinman more than a fan. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is a hell of a production job. I'll give him that. So, anyway, uh, there's not too much to lament from from Runger. And he's, he's lived a, a wonderfully strange, exotic, interesting American life. So, more power to him. And in the meantime, uh, go find something, anything, and uh, make that your homework for the week. Besides Richard and Linda Thompson. <laughs> and with that, uh, we now leave the vault. And folks, uh, it's been real. It's been interesting. Don't know if it's been real interesting, but uh, thank you for <laughs> uh, hanging out with us. Uh, we should say that you could always hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we've talked about our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, we'll probably have several threads that come out of this. Uh, stay tuned uh, for more Richard Thompson stuff and for more stuff that will reveal the majesty of our next subject, which Arturo uh, is going to be uh, the next in our series of In Defense Of episodes. Well, folks, before we depart, one thing to note. We mentioned how YouTube is the great preserver of lost music. This, unfortunately, includes the catalog of Richard Thompson. The albums Pour Down Like Silver, First Light, and Sunny Vista can be found there, but not on Spotify. So check out the special duo we've just introduced you to uh, in those three instances on YouTube. We'll see everyone back here in two weeks.